Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner. Me too. I've got everything fired up on this end. I always kind of wait to see the on the audio equipment and just start seeing the 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 wave bounce up and down, so I know it's all good to go. I do the same because I don't I don't want a word I say about this movie to not be documented <laughs> for now and ever. So, hello and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always uh, remotely by my co-host. And cohort Julio, Julio, it's uh, it's fitting that it's been overcast all weekend when we're dealing with such a overcast movie. Uh, it's a perfect rainy day movie, as we'll get to in our discussion. But it's supposed to, you know, it was supposed to storm all weekend, and it's just kind of sprinkled here and there. But the storm came this morning when I fired up Homefront. What we're here to discuss today? Well, I I got some some torrential downpour uh, for about fifteen minutes, I think. The 15 minutes when I was out and about driving. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I got poured on. But I had the memory of what I'd seen the night before. <laughs> and then I refreshed that memory when I got home. I watched this movie twice, Alex. That's that's how Hell much yes. I, I was invested in it. Did you do you have a physical copy of it? Did you order one for the No, I, I rented it from Amazon. So I had it for 48 hours. Okay. I was like, you know what? It's there. It's not going anywhere for another 15 hours, so might as well fire it up again. <laughs> Get to it. There, there are so, many things in this movie that I won't see again anywhere else. So That's, that's very true. Uh, we are here today continuing on uh, our Summer of Winona journey. Hashtag Winona Virus 2020. Hashtag Ride or Die. Uh, to visit the 2013 action blockbuster Homefront starring Jason Statham James Franco, Kate Bosworth, and of course, Miss Winona Ryder. Um, definitely tonally has shifted gears in the summer of Winona. This is like, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, we had Mr. Deeds but and um, Alien, but this is like the first like popcorn movie that we've come across in the summer of Winona. Yes, y- yes. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's, of course, we're seeing it through the lenses of uh, just having gone through probably the heaviest. The Crucible? <laughs> yes, the heaviest of the Summer of Winona titles. And I, I thought you were going to see, you were going to say this is the, the least Winona-ish movie that we've done so far, which would also fit. I think uh, even something like Mr. Deeds felt more Still like a Winona, Winona movie. tropes. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is almost like, wow, it's... It's a great movie that, on top of that, 
the added bonus is that it has Winona in it, but you could remove her from the movie and it's still a great movie. So it's Elizabeth Berkeley in Showgirls. It's just a complete departure from what we're used to with uh, Winona Ryder, and especially uh, cramming all these movies into a very consolidated period of time. It's uh, fun to see the ebbs and flows. But to your point, yeah, this is uh, there's not many of the Winona isms that we've come to know and love in this one. It's definitely a departure for her. Uh, and as we were saying before we started recording, uh, definitely the movie with the least Winona. It's 40 minutes into the movie before she shows up. And from that point on, she's she obviously plays a prominent role. But like I, the analogy I used with you, Julio, is she's definitely like rattlesnake venom in this movie of just a little bit will get you. Yeah. And it's not like the movie's too long to begin with. So, you know, 40 minutes in, you only have 50 minutes left of movie. <laughs> It's essentially Matt Damon and Interstellar. It's just, you know, you got to hold you hold your cards and play it at the right time. That's exactly what they did here. I would say a, a good good placement for, for the summer of Winona because uh, I'll tell you, Alex, I was, as much as I'm loving this, I, a sign that I needed a little bit of Winona detox was that a couple days ago, I, I had a Winona Ryder dream. That's when you know, I, I never even had, I never had a, a Travolta dream when we did the summer of Travolta. And, but I think now quarantine, uh, coupled with just the, the intense amount of Winona Ryder we've been experiencing over the past few months. <laughs> yeah, that definitely, that that's a sign that it's perforated a bit too much. Uh, with uh, the summer of Travolta, though, we did... Um, we didn't have as many bonus episodes, so they were more spaced out. We've definitely done. We're 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 close to ODing on Winona here, and uh, <laughs> so this it, it's it was fitting that we just lowered the dose on mm-hmm. on this episode. Oh yeah, because there's so much more to admire and uh, pay respects to in this movie. Um, so, if this is your first time listening to the Contrarians, we appreciate you doing so. Uh, if you're a returning listener, thank you very much. Give us a moment here while we review our gimmick with our uh, new listeners. Uh, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine is our expression. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, sometimes known as certified fresh, aiming for about the 85% and above, uh, and then make a case for maybe why it shouldn't be so highly regarded. And then on the other side of that coin, find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, a nasty green splotch often referred to as rotten. And uh, we usually shoot about 40% below. Uh, this movie went just a, a smidge over that at 43%. But like we'll be doing with this, for these rotten movies, we like to find the positive merit in them and tell you maybe why you should go out of your way to see these movies that are allegedly rotten. Made uh, air quotes when I did that. If for some reason the poster didn't convince you to go see it. Just... The poster that's like, oh, God. Uh, pause. And uh, if you want to know how we really feel about the the movie at hand, uh, the subject at hand, stick around for the second half of the podcast, the appropriately titled Real Talk. Now, unpausing, yes, the poster for this movie is incredible. (laughs) The fucking American flag faded over Jason Statham. Have you ever seen The Last Stand with Arnold Schwarzenegger? No. Okay. I know I've heard of it, but this is like his comeback, right? When he Mm -hmm. he was done being governor. Very similar to this in terms of like a dumb action movie with a pretty solid A-list cast. And it's very similar in that uh, in this movie we have Jason Statham of European descent very heavily who plays <laughs> Phil Broker, just a American DEA agent who lives in the bayou. Uh, and they don't even uh, – like it's not a subject and they don't even try to mask his accent. 
that's exactly what happens in the last stand with Schwarzenegger. His name's Ray Owens and he works in like a small <laughs> Texas town and he's the sheriff and they don't even bring up like his accent or anything. And that's, I respect that as a viewer. I, I think that shows the filmmakers have respect for me as a moviegoer, as just like, listen, we know, you know, this guy's not American, but we know why you're here. You want to see him kick some ass. So we're just going <laughs> to give that to you instead. But it's also, uh, yeah, it's also the ideal of America, right? That's what we're striving for. An America where we just, we don't determine nationality based on your accent. <laughs> yes. An America where we don't question uh, that Statham sounds like a British guy. If he, I'll take it. If he says he's American, he's American. I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, ask him for proof. Jason Statham is 52. God, I hope I age like that. He's looked the same for fucking 20 years. And usually white people age terribly. Anyway, yeah, and to your point, I mean, these action stars, Arnold Schwarzenegger is, like, one of the greatest living embodiments of the American dream. And honestly, Jason Statham's not too far off. You come over here, and he's a, a national hero in many respects. He's the goddamn, uh, what's the movie where he's got the the thing in his heart that's going to explode? Is that the transporter? Crank. crank. No, I'm sorry. No, it's Crank. Were there multiple cranks? Did he crank again? There's two, as far as I remember. Okay. No, the transporter was what I was thinking of. That is not the one where he has the device in his heart. Uh, no. Uh, there's three transporters, and he is in at least, I want to say, three Fast and the Furious. God bless. So he's he's doing well. Also, according to he's his Wikipedia page, he is in Nomeo and Juliet. Just He has that in his back pocket. <laughs> and, of course, he has London. Oh, God, yes. Former... Uh, Embry winner on the Contrarians podcast, Jason Statham, making his triumphant return. And on the other side of that poster, this thing looks like a, it looks like a fight poster. Like I, there's like <laughs> the slaughter in the water or, you know, the beat down in the bayou. Uh, you have James Franco at the bottom of the poster looking like he was originally cast for Revenge of the Sith. And it's at the lava scene where like all the ambers and shit are flying behind him and he had just cut off. You know, uh, Obi or uh, Anakin's legs. It's fucking awesome. Yep. But it's definitely, uh, I think it, it brings a, a nice subtlety with the heaven and hell aspect to it. With our, uh, and it's also really cool as a viewer, as we'll get into, because it kind of swerves you a little bit. Like James Franco is the bad guy, but there's multiple bad guys in this movie. So it sets the table. Yeah, you yeah. walk into it thinking one thing, and, you know, they serve you up something different. Um, did you, did you recognize any of the, the other minor characters from previous Contrarians movies. Hasn't Frank Grillo been in something we did? Yeah, he's uh, he's Crossbones in uh, in the MCU. So you would ah. have seen him in uh, all the Captain America movies. Well. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Alex's level of energy, his enthusiasm just took a dive. <laughs> I mean, Chuck Zito. It's too soon to bring up the MCU. I, I mentioned, it, moving on, I, m- I mentioned Chuck Zito. <laughs> uh Last week, when we were when I was reading over the cast for this, so I knew him. Clancy Brown, the sheriff, he was um, uh, one of the main characters in that video game Detroit that I raged so much about. Uh, so, well, he yeah. was also the 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 main dad in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. That's where I remember him. That's from. right. That's right. And uh, Omar Benson Miller, who uh, I recognize just. I don't know from what, but he definitely is a familiar face. He's one of those guys, I don't remember him ever like starring in anything, but definitely had uh, prominent roles throughout his uh, career. 
Who's that? Is that uh, the the friend? one black friend? The one Tito? black character in the yes. entire movie. I was gonna say the one black friend, but it's no, it's the one black character in the whole movie. His boss is also black. I oh, I was, is he? Actually, I said we're we're moving forward here in the summer of Winona too. Because if there's <laughs> one of... place in America that's not racially diverse, it's fucking New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> so we are here today. Tackling the 2013 release at Homefront, directed by Gary Fletter. I, I apologize, Mr. Fletter. In the meantime, I didn't learn how to properly pronounce your name. It is based on Homefront by Chuck Logan. The screenplay adaptation was written by the one, the only, the incomparable Rocky Balboa himself, Sylvester Stallone. Feels as fitting of time as any to bring up that this is the only movie that Sylvester Stallone had a hand in the making of, be it director, producer, writer, etc., that he did not appear in, which is pretty fascinating. My, I watched this with my dad, and he immediately called that out. He's like, Sly, Sly wrote it, so I'm assuming he's in it. And I was like, nope, and then did the research and found out it's the only thing he's ever helped make that he wasn't a part of, or acting-wise. He could have cast himself... In one of Surprising the he parts, didn't. I guess he's, yeah, he could have been the sheriff. Or he could have had the Chuck Zito character. I think he's just friends with Chuck Zito and threw him a bone. Uh, what's his name? <laughs> Danny, I think his name is. Uh, Danny T. Turry. So, I mean, obviously, you know what you're getting into when something's written by Sylvester Stallone. Uh, or do you? This is not Rocky. No. No, this did not win Best Picture. Uh, <laughs> sadly. So, being that this is 43%, it is rotten, meaning there's a majority of critics did not care for it. As If, if you've been listening to the Summer of Winona, you know uh, our podcasting friends and those in the podcasting community have reached out with contributions to several of the movies we've done. It appears as though all of our friends are cowards, though, for not uh, tuning in for <laughs> Homefront and providing us with their thoughts and rave reviews of this film. So... As Julio is one to do, he does his research. He goes to RottenTomatoes.com and finds what some of these fuckers were saying about the movie. Julio, what was the word? Uh, grease was the word. Uh, that you heard. Also, you might have noticed, uh, or our last episode, we did not have this little segment. And that's, we did record it, but we were running so long that we ended up snipping out all the quotes because uh, we didn't have any clips. Uh, I don't know that we're going to run long on this one because it's just concise and powerful. My so. notes are like half of what my notes were for The Crucible. <laughs> to be fair, it was it was Daniel Day-Lewis's debut on The Contrarians. It deserved to be a monolithic episode. Yeah, I mean, we love Kate Bosworth, but it's it's a lot easier to just talk about her without you know going hyperbolic. <laughs> All right. So I have a few rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. And we're going to start with David Demby from The New Yorker, who says, The screenplay for this violent retro schlock was written by Sylvester Stallone, and the movie feels like something out of the early 80s. But he says it like that's a bad thing. We've had plenty of 80s love in this show before. Yeah. Next, Amy Nicholson from LA Weekly says, Stallone plopping Statham in this bore feels like an alpha setting up his successor to fail, like Zeus swallowing up his challengers before they force him into retirement. It's an interesting conspiracy Zeus theory. is in Tiny Lister from No Holds Barred? <laughs> yes, exactly like that. <laughs> uh, do, you think, uh, do you think Stallone was setting Statham up for failure? No. Was this no. all part of his plan to reclaim the, the title of most badass in cinema? I mean, uh, like, you can see this movie. You can see Stallone being the lead in this. So I think it's just, that's not the case, no. 
You are wrong, whoever that critic was. <laughs> Amy Nicholson. Uh, you can see him being the lead in the 80s. But can you see him being the lead, you know, I don't know, even like in the 2000s? I, I mean, the fucking Expendables. I mean, I guess that's sort of a point. <laughs> Next, Liam Lacey from Globe and Mail. That's a porn says, name. Homefront aims to be... <laughs> Homefront aims to be retro, greasy comfort food, but despite its lowly ambitions, there's barely enough spice here to merit a decent burp. God, what an idiot. That, that's like, if there's been a bad take, I've heard one. Like, he had it going there in the first half. It was like, hell yeah. And then he just kept going and then turned it around. Fuck off. Yeah. Uh, did you did you burp plenty of times during this movie? I did eat breakfast. My mom and dad were here this weekend, and we had my mom made a big spread, so I had some grilled spam and bacon and eggs while I watched this. So there was definitely some gastrointestinal uh, issues. It was it was a good pick for uh, for the weekend that your parents visited. I'm glad yes. that your dad was around to enjoy this. <laughs> my mom laughed really hard at one line that we'll bring up later. <laughs> um, and finally. Scott Bowles from USA Today says, Homefront is what Breaking Bad may have resembled had Sylvester Stallone written the TV show. Uh, awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's... It would be a very different movie, or a, it would be a very different TV show, but it would still be pretty amazing. Brian Cranston would not be the lead, though. What is, what was, what, what's the line that Sly would say? If... What does what <laughs> what fucking Walter say? If you think... What you think is right, then tread lightly. <laughs> uh, all right. So USA Today, I, I guess he thought that was putting it down, but nah, man. Um, yeah, I don't know how he feels about Breaking Bad, but I guess, you know, yeah, that was rotten. All right. Is that it for the quote skis? That is it for the quotes. Let's dive into Contrarian's Corner. All right. So all caps, my first note is long-haired Statham. Always uh, oh, a good sign. <laughs> DEA agent. Phil Broker, we start off like immediately subverting the expectations of the audience because on the poster, he's classic Jason Statham, and here he's got long hair. He's in a biker gang, not unlike the Sons of Anarchy uh, with Chuck Zito, and they are manufacturing or um, orchestrating some massive drug deal. I believe it's meth that they're trying to move, and because he's a DEA agent, this is like the big bust, and this is like... One of those movies that just drops you right in. There's no time for exposition or any type of, you know, there's no monologue to explain to you, hey, this is where we are and this is why it's happening. So, of course, it just starts off, this goes awry. Chuck Zito's the leader of this biker gang and gunfire, the DEA breaks in. It's just a massive shootout. They learn through this that Jason Statham is a rat, as they would say. Uh, he is an undercover police officer, a federal agent. So it leads to a chase. Long story short, what happens here, uh, Danny T, Chuck Zito, the leader of this biker gang, and his son um, get into an altercation with Jason Statham that leads to uh, Danny's son getting gunned down and killed in the street, uh, which Danny T then swears vengeance. He says he will kill Broker and kill his children and that he's dead. Then we get a montage, uh, not unlike when the Simpsons had to be placed in the witness relocation program. We now have... <laughs> Uh, through the process of title credits, we have now moved our story uh, to the outskirts of New Orleans. So this this is, what would you say, the first, what, five minutes of the movie? Oh, yeah. Not even ten minutes. It's just maybe, let's say, five minutes and about 10,000 cuts. 
<laughs> it, it, the way that uh, the Mr. Flitter shoots this, it it's pretty immersive. It, you really get the feeling of, uh, I would imagine, when you're in a shootout, like like the one that Statham finds himself in here, it's just nonstop. Like you're not thinking; you're just reacting to everything that's happening. And that's what what this movie, what watching this movie feels like. It's like he's you know he's turning, and the and you cut from one shot of him turning to the shot of him turning again. But before you even you're even settled on that shot, you're already cutting to a shot of like the guy that's shooting at him, and then you cut into the captain outside, and then sometimes you even cut from like a shot. To the same shot. It's like Statham is turning to the left, and then you cut to a shot that's him turning to the left also. <laughs> it's uh it's pretty manic. It's a, but that's that's exactly the kind of energy that that permeates the entire movie. So I mean you can't tell them that they're not preparing you right away uh for, for the kind of ride that this is gonna be. It's like Metal Gear Solid or something, one of those cut scenes or chase scenes in it that it's just all over the place. <laughs> yes. Um so, if I understood this correctly, the original drug bust was in New Orleans, uh, where this movie begins, where the shootout takes place, and the idea to relocate Mr. Broker was just, like, move him 30 minutes outside of New Orleans. Not, you know, somewhere <laughs> on the other side of the country or to Canada or something. It's just like, hey, just get in your car and drive for a half hour and then just, like, take up residence there. When you run out of gas, you're there. But the point is, we've already established Statham. Mr. Broker is such a badass that, it, of course, you buy it. You're like, yeah, he doesn't give a fuck. He can live wherever he wants. <laughs> it, uh, okay, so you're are you positive that he was relocated? I, Alex, I've seen this movie twice, and I thought, because there's so much information flashing at you, I thought that he'd quit. Oh, I guess that's true, too. He, he could have. Because he was mad that the kid got killed, so. Right. Uh, but I could be wrong. Whatever the that that makes that makes more sense. Well, no, I, I was about to say relocation makes more sense to me now because uh, later we find out that he still has boxes and boxes of his old paperwork in his 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 history as a DA agent in his basement. Which yeah yeah no yeah I might that might be right because he doesn't want anyone to know who he is because it would put like him and his daughter in danger. Uh, Gary Flatter, reach out to us. Explain us just this minor plot point. Everything else about the movie, I get, but this little part, <laughs> it doesn't matter because the movie still works. But uh, yeah, I I would like to know if he quit in protest because things got too violent. Fucking, what's his name? Why am I blanking on his name? Robin. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt at the end of The Dark Knight Rises when he's just looking over that pier and he throws his badge <laughs> into the water. We just missed out on that one cut of Jason Statham doing that. Or telling his boss to shove it. I mean, we, we, we got the next best thing. The next best thing was him walking towards the camera with his long hair flowing <laughs> behind him in slow motion. And you can just tell that that was, you know, shooting a guy three times, that's okay. Shooting a guy 20 times like they did with uh, with that guy's son, that was too much. Unacceptable. Uh, Winona Ryder gets third billing in this. Uh, I believe we had mentioned that previously, if not on this episode, a prior one. We start with a drama of a different sort, not necessarily a shootout, but we come to find out it is uh, Phil Broker's daughter, Maddie, at her uh, school, elementary school maybe. I don't know. She looks like maybe 11, 12, 13, maybe. Uh, she turns 10 in this movie. Oh, so, okay. Even so, younger. <laughs> definitely elementary school. Uh, she's getting bullied by some fat kid, so she just punches him in the face and kicks him in the stomach and uh, just completely humbles him, which, of course, 
leads to her parents or his parents, excuse me, showing up and getting all pissed off. We get Miss Kate Bosworth as the role of Cassie and her, uh, her very, uh, timid and, um, overmatched husband, Jimmy. And this was some of the places my extended family has lived. This wasn't that far off in terms of just like, I've seen massive white trash like this that gets worked up over things and tries to create a scene at a moment's notice. Uh, so they see uh, Phil Broker and start talking shit. I think Kate Bodsworth calls uh, his daughter a bitch or something, and there's this big hubbub well, so no, much. So she's, th- she sends her husband to call the daughter a bitch. <laughs> yes. He, she calls he, her he, She calls her husband a fucking coward, and then yeah. he goes and calls a little girl a bitch. Way to, way to win, man. Gotten to. Uh, the situation is so much so that we meet the sheriff, the local sheriff of the town, Sheriff Keith Rodriguez, played by Clancy Brown, uh, who I guess kind of does his job. He just kind of stands there and makes sure everything's okay. And then when this guy calls Statham's daughter a bitch, it leads to him basically like judo tossing him onto the ground and separating his shoulder damn near. And Clancy's just like, all right, <laughs> let's let's back it off a little bit. And then he tells uh, Statham, hey, I saw what happened. He was out of line. But you were too because you just embarrassed him in front of his son. <laughs> He's so chill. I, we are, We're conditioned by movies and by reality to expect the cop to pull his gun out. <laughs> yeah. And he's leaning against his truck the entire time. There is a cut of this movie. Uh, it's like hashtag release the Clancy Brown cut that shows the the character arc of this sheriff, which starts with uh, him in this scene, just being pretty chilled and ends with him at the very end, finally pulling a shotgun and almost shooting. Uh that's I understand that they wanted to keep it short, so they had to cut all most of that stuff out. But I, I I'm pretty sure it's there somewhere. His entire uh, introspection and this like existential crisis that he has about it, or just like him just realizing, oh, I can use this thing, and then you know firing it <laughs> off. He was uh, what do you call it? Uh, say a conscientious objector, whatever Andrew Garfield was in that war movie. It was like, I'll be the sheriff, but I will not carry. Okay, I will carry, but I will not pull it. Okay, but I will don't not make use me it. shoot. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kate Bosworth is amazing here. She brought it because yes, you could say that the the stereotypical white trash role is just easy to recognize, but it's not something that you associate with Kate Bosworth. No. When I see Kate Bosworth, I think Lois Lane. That's really my go-to. Wholesomeness. Mine is Straw Dogs. That was the first thing I saw her in, God, which is not a wholesome dude, movie. So that's Okay, well, anything you see her in is going to be a marked departure from from that movie. Uh, no, that's not true. She was in Blue Crush. I remember that was all the rage when I was in high school. Um, yeah. Well, she's not surfing here. She's just, unless you mean surfing in meth. Yeah, I was about to say, she's definitely riding a wave of some sorts. Uh, <laughs> and we are introduced to the villain, the second villain, uh, Alien himself. James Franco is here. And he's been on the podcast before, right? Yeah, Camille. Oh, God. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> you want to talk about a departure? Uh, yeah. James Franco is here, simply known as Gator. He is the brother of Kate Bosworth's character and a local, um, I guess, kingpin 
Uh, you know, he doesn't have the trappings of what we've come to know and respect of drug dealers in uh, movies, dramas, television shows, things of that nature. He's just like a white trash dude, but he runs shit. It's uh, not unlike Ozark and that whole heroin scene. Um, just skeevy ass white people, man, in the backwoods. Uh, but he's a, he's a bad hombre. We're introduced yeah. to him. Um, by beating the shit out of some dude with a baseball bat, basically some rival that's trying to cook up meth and spread it around his town. Uh, and he, yeah, he's a bad guy. We learned that very quickly. Yeah. Much like, uh, like Kate Bosworth, I, he, he, he brought it. He's, he's so much more engaged than, than he was in the movie Camille. He's really reacting. His eyes look alive and, and he actually seems like he's having fun. Uh, I don't know. What the what the average is on his career as far as like how many times he's played the bad guy versus how many times he's played the good guy, um, in my mind I kind of feel like he's not usually he doesn't get to play this type of role as a villain. It's funny you say that this you know this is the same year as Spring Breakers and I think the <laughs> the two roles really complement each other. Maybe that's it. He was just he was riding high from Spring Breakers and and just channel that energy into this performance or the other way around but either way he's just he's creepy and he's lazy and i it was just so much fun to see him on screen just beating people up and teasing them the way that he talks to statham the way that he talks to his sister the way he talks to his sister's brother he's just uh he's a joy to behold Do you know he was in nine movies in 2013 10 if you count fuck? spring breakers yeah uh the reason I say count because it was released uh, in 2013, but it had premiered in 2012. So Gator, as he's known, bad dude. Kate Bosworth's all mixed up. She's not going to let this thing go, as White Trash is known to do. And goes to score from her brother, but also says, hey, this there's this issue with this girl and this guy. You know, they're new to the town and they're causing trouble. So the quote was, I need you to mess with their heads. To which James Franco is just like, all right, whatever. Doesn't seem like it's too much of a stray for him. So he goes over to their house. Big time Marcus Nispel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibes. That shot of like the screen door that's like backlit. And it's yeah. him like peering in. We just needed uh, the swing. That's Yes. Yeah. And just a wide shot of Jessica Biel's ass. Because why not? <laughs> and... He goes over, the house is unlocked. I mean, that's the type of place I want to live in, a town like that where you don't have to worry about shit. But you do have to worry about shit because a guy named Gator lives there and he comes <laughs> in your house and fucking cuts the head off your daughter's uh, stuffed animals and steals your cat. And while this is all happening, though, it's interspersed with cuts of my notes, just all caps again, American Statham. It's like they're trying to like <laughs> paint this picture of him being like, you know, Uncle Sam or uh, American Americana, Don McLean and apple pie and all that shit. It's him like he's riding a horse with his daughter. Right. And yeah, it's in the sun and it looks like a goddamn Old Spice commercial. The excuse, I guess, uh, to to have this is that they're they're remembering the the girl's mother, so I guess Statham's wife, because he's a widower. Um, God, this movie's so awesome. But he was not a widower when the movie started. So in the two years that have passed between you know him relocating or quitting and and you know him being here with his daughter, his wife died, and they never say how she died, right? 
Uh, correct. I imagine if she had died like as a result of his work, then this movie would be different. But uh, the town they moved to is the town that Maddie's deceased mother grew up in. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. It was her dying wish. <laughs> Please go back home. But it's so close to where I killed all those uh, drug dealers. I don't care. Take her daughter there. Raise her with the horses. Uh, I think this movie. You know, speaking of racing kids, so this I, I I think that's the ultimate message theme behind this movie. That is obviously I wouldn't say obscured, but um, there's so much pyrotechnics, so much action that you could kind of get lost there. And that is that uh, just the complexity of raising a kid in a world that's inherently violent and out to get them. So this girl gets in trouble at school for defending herself. Uh, against a bully and the teacher, the super hot teacher that that's talking to Statham about this, she says, uh, so you think it's a good idea to teach your daughter how to fight? And he goes, no, but it is a good idea to teach her how to defend herself. And, and they kind of leave it there. But, but this, where is that line? And I think that this movie consistently explores that line of where is it that, how far does self-defense go versus just abusing your power? Because she kicks that, that, that kid's ass very easily. You could say that she did not need to go that far. I mean, she breaks his nose or something because the kid is like it's blood all over his shirt. Oh yeah, and, he's uh, a, a hobbled mess. Yeah, and and Satham is a powerhouse throughout this movie. You could probably say the same thing about him. Anytime that he fights against any of uh, James Franco's goons, uh, it's like, does he need to be? as brutal with them <laughs> is there a less lethal way of of disposing of them uh and what kind of example is he setting for his daughter and so you have this this sequence where they talk and they have the horses and they remember her mother his late wife and it's maybe like one of the few moments of peace in such a violent world and you can tell that 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 contrast between the life that he wishes they were leading, but the life that they're actually living, which is, you know, you can move wherever you want. The world is a violent place. Uh, so it's it's pretty cool. It's it's one of the few moments of peace in the movie. Uh, and if you took that out, it wouldn't be as effective by the time you get to the end. Yeah, what led to this, the situation and Franco coming over and fucking with their stuff is, uh, like you said, his goons originally just tried to rough him up at the local gas station and he just mercilessly beat the shit out of him and and like smashed one of their head through a car window and went the whole nine yards. And this was after he attempted to apologize to the <laughs> family. But it's like when the James Franco thing, it's like the uh, once you press the detonation or once you launch the missile, there's no going back. And so at this point, Statham's been, uh, excuse me, Franco has been inconvenienced and he's uh, he's over it. So... He goes over and in the midst of just trying to fuck with uh, all their stuff at their house, comes across these boxes of documents and learns that Phil Broker was a uh, DEA agent, a federal agent. And we get like this awesome scene of James Franco just reading his files to himself while eating a bag of potato (laughs) chips and just kind of piecing everything together and laughing to himself about it. He's a bad dude. Yeah. Uh, Jason Statham doesn't believe in flash drives. He's he's old school. <laughs> Just he's ready to be audited, I guess, by the DEA in case they ever ask him where where all that paperwork about his transfer slash uh, resignation is. And he figures out. He calls. This is actually when we get to Winona, the woman of the hour, 
uh, is a waitress at a bar, a local bar. It does not look like a, a fun place to be for her. But anyway, he gives her a call and he's like, hey, I've got something big. You need to get over here. And he pieces it all together that the biker gang, he was undercover for them. The kid died and he's going to sell off uh, brokers whereabouts. Uh, and we find out in return for having wider distribution of his drug dealing. Right. Uh, his connection, I guess, is with a writer because she used to hang out with, with that gang. With the She was a, a biker groupie. What's his name? Justin T? Danny T? <laughs> Danny T. Danny T. She, she used to run with those guys before, uh, before she started hanging out with Franco. Um, let's, let's not skip past the, the really intense sex scene between James Franco and our writer, very reminiscent of the De Niro Eugenio sex scene that we constantly reference here. This it is, is abrupt. Yes. <laughs> the at least we get the the courtesy of a kiss before you actually yes. cut to the actual the actual act. And and in this one, unlike with the De Niro Eugenio thing, uh, Franco keeps his shirt on, mm-hmm. but other than that, I mean, it's a wider shot with. Uh, it's just say... like one static shot of him just going to slam town on her, and she's like bent over the hood of his car or her car or something, and it's it's just out of nowhere. So it, I was like, whoa, Winona sex just established breaking ground yeah. on the summer of Winona. I mean, we've had Winona sex, but we we haven't had this kind of Winona sex, right? This is no. a far cry from uh, from. Ethan Hawke putting his hands all over her face in Reality Bites. Yeah, this is like they're in a dirty ass car garage, and just he just <laughs> gives it to her right there on the the hood of the car. It's like high school sex. Like they're just they're ready for it and to go at it. Yeah, it's it's a cherry on top of the of the Winona Ryder characterization in this movie because. It's such a cool reveal because she's getting, I guess, drinks from the bar. And then she turns from the bar when we see her for the first time. She turns with with the two pitchers of beer or something. And then you see, like, oh, that's Winona Ryder. 40 minutes in, there she is. And she looks like nothing we've seen before in the summer of Winona. She is, she is like, really tight clothes and she has long hair and the makeup. and Her hair is yeah. really frizzed out. Oh, God, it's just, like, perfect white trash uh, aesthetic. Yeah. She looks uh, damaged and... Not to be trusted, but also you kind of want her to be okay. <laughs> you could you could go down a dark path w- with this girl. So yeah, she was. A, I think the plot summation I read somewhere referred to her as a, a biker groupie uh, for this biker gang that was entangled with broker. And um, so Statham, or excuse me, I keep confusing the two. So Gator James Franco sends her to New Orleans to hand over, or at least give like a little. Um, like dangle the carrot type thing in front of, uh, I believe if I pieced it together correctly, Danny T's lawyer. And so Danny T's lawyer visits him in jail and explains, hey, we found him. And he just tells him, take care of this for me. So it's at this point, it's like release the hounds type thing. Because we're we're seeing uh, clips of Maddie's 10th birthday party. And at this point, it's also worth mentioning that uh, she is like probably the most noble character in the movie. The innocence of a child is on full display as she, to make up with the kid whose ass she whooped, she's like, hey, do you want to come to my party? And Kate Bosworth, I think, <laughs> accepts it as a peace offering, but she's just tweaking so hard. She has a really hard time expressing her emotions. <laughs> Although she manages to ask uh, Statham for, 
for a new shirt because the kid's that's shirt right. was ruined by the blood. <laughs> and then she says, so I guess that's that, and then walks off. So we're getting these clips, like these amazing slow motion clips of uh, big, happy, smiling Jason Statham at his daughter's uh, birthday party, uh, interwoven with the biker gang making its way to town, uh, led by Frank Grio of apparent Marvel Cinematic Universe fame. Crossbones. And he meets up with Winona, and again, uh, attention to detail to make sure we understand we're in the bayou. They eat a big old bowl or a big old bucket of crawfish. <laughs> but and... Winona's allergic. So they have that yeah. that awesome reaction shot where Frank Grillo is like, do you want some? And she's like, I'm good. And she looks like she's about to throw up. He like, doesn't he like come up and just kind of like they do almost like a, a shovel or a scoop, just dumps them on the table. And he's like, I love these things. And he's yep. fucking nuts. Uh, she tells him what she wants or what the plan is. If we give you his whereabouts, uh, we get to expand our operation. He just keeps saying, where's the narc? And eventually she tries to stand her ground. So he grabs her by the back of the neck and, uh, and no uncertain terms says, I'm going to like kill you right here unless you give me what I want. Yeah. Uh, she, by then I think she was, he was. Uh, 2013, I don't know if he was part of a Marvel Universe. If he was not Crossbones, he might have been at least pre-Crossbones. But she knew, if she'd been following uh, the MCU, she knew that he was not to be trifled with. Well, she knew him too from a past life. I think even they might have formed the Beast with two backs. That's right. I think they imply that they had sex before and she was one of the... Because she knows how dangerous he is. She said he's a fucking animal. Would you have left that guy for James Franco in this movie? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> and I mean James Franco it does look like he gives her the passionate loving. Uh, I, we didn't we didn't see any of Frank Grillo's fuck game and what it was what level he was on so it's hard to say. I'd How have big to, was his garage? We don't know. It's like Baskin Robbins. I'd have to sample the flavors before I picked one. <laughs> By this point, uh Broker has gotten wind of Gator and he knows he's related to Kate Bosworth and uh, he knows the situation's kind of spiraled out of control. He even went back to visit um, Jimmy after apologizing to him, the dad of the kid whose who's ass he whooped, and says, you need to stop. He thinks it was him initially that took his cat and fucked with stuff at their house. And so he eventually comes to learn through his friend, the previously mentioned, his name's Tito in the movie, the Omar Benson Miller. He goes and confronts Gator. It's a fucking Clash of the Titans type thing here. Um just because it's the first time we get them together on screen. I know I make the analogy all the time, but it's uh, when you get DiCaprio and Matt Damon on screen for the same for the first time in The Departed. And with, with Nicholson on the side, because we know the writer is on the side of this, in this scene. It's, it's the best scene in the movie. Exactly. You never get the three of them together again. No, and he just walks up and he tells them he's... Like, just, you need to back off, quit fucking with me. But, of course, they're saying it in, like, really passive-aggressive terms. And James Franco is playing stupid to the whole thing, and it's actually pretty funny. There's definitely uh, shades of the alien character here uh, from Spring Breakers. And he kind of, like, rolls his eyes, and the way he kind of stutters his words out. It's, I think, I would say this would uh, be Franco's Oscar clip. Yes, I mean, there, he has so many like good lines. I, w- I would have trouble just narrowing it down to just one moment for the Oscar clip. They might have to play the entire scene, um, which would benefit Winona Ryder because I, I really, I think that what really finally takes it over the top is that the difference between Franco's behavior and Winona Ryder's behavior in the scene, because she is freaking out from the moment she sees Statham walk into the, the diner yeah. they're at. She's like, oh shit, oh shit. And, uh, 
every time that Franco says something that's disrespectful or, or that he mocks Statham, when her writer's eyes go big, and then she looks at him and looks back at Statham trying to figure out who's going to who's gonna throw the first punch. Uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's literally like a, a boxing or MMA, like a big fight. Like the trash talk between them isn't just like, hey, fuck your mother. It's like just kind of this really domineering, big time alpha macho shit. And it's during this, it, I think it might follow this, but it's during all this is when uh, broker Jason Statham comes to find out who Winona Ryder is. Cheryl is her name and her affiliation with the biker gang. So he starts to see at this point shit's really about to to pop off. Uh, right. Uh, his, his old boss sends him a, a picture of, uh, I guess, Winona's record. Mugshot? The mugshot, yeah. But... Backing up just a tick, this the back and forth between Franco and Statham. He just says, you know, quit rooting around my shit. Uh, that's my house. Don't come to my house. Blah, 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 blah. And Franco Gator says, I'm a bit lost. And then Statham tells him, well, then let's get you found. And I was just like, hell yeah. Men doing men shit. And then, like, he goes to leave, and Franco stands up and gets one last glib comment in, and there's a face-off. And it is kind of like just what you're saying. It's like they're face-to-face, and then the, we're, we're just missing a focus pull where it's Winona Ryder in the background, like, biting her nails or something. <laughs> we do get a shot of uh, Tito, who's sitting at the bar. Oh, yeah, he, like, looks over this. his shoulder and just starts, like, <laughs> white people. Like, he just starts, yeah. like, shaking his head. <laughs> but that's not enough, so... Broker Statham immediately goes to um, James Franco's cookhouse and just starts fucking with stuff. And again, you want to talk about subverting your expectation. The expression always is don't introduce a gun in the first act without using it in the third act. We're close to the third act here. And this is like where the proverbial gun gets introduced because uh, (laughs) essentially what Jason Statham does is he rigs Gator's entire cookhouse to blow up once they hit the breaker again. Now, be honest. Did you remember he had done this? By the time that we got to to the end of the movie, like, were you keeping track of when is this gonna go off, or did you forget? Uh, like I was, and then I forgot about it. But when they got back to the cookhouse, I was like, "Oh shit, that place is rigged to blow." <laughs> uh, yeah, I forgot about it. And I think part of it is just that uh, they they distract you with the cat. It, 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 the mm-hmm. The way that they play with the cat in, in this whole sequence, I knew that would get to you. Is- You're- Julio's a much bigger cat person than I am. I'm more of a dog person. So when they introduced the cat as part of the storytelling, I was like, oh, man, Julio's going to bite on this like a like a fish. Well, yeah, because they leave you hanging. You never know if the cat's alive or dead. And this is the kind of movie where Winona Ryder's dropping F-bombs left and right, so they could kill a cat. That's radar. So I was 50% sure that Statham was just going to find a dead cat, and that was going to send him into rage. Instead, yeah. he finds... Uh, a cat that's still alive, but then he gets into more shenanigans. So we never, for a good chunk of the time, you're worried about whether the cat's going to make it or not, at least if you or me. <laughs> so you forget <laughs> about everything that he rigged. I, From the moment that that cat was in danger, I just vaguely remember that Statham had been at the at the drug house, but I I did not remember all the, all the stuff that he had rigged there. Uh, fun fact, James Franco, from, based on my research, he actually uh, adopted that cat. He kind of created a bond with it on set and adopted that cat when they wrapped Aww. on it. Yeah. Uh, not very fitting of the Gator character, but speaks <laughs> to James Franco. So, yeah, he finds Luther the cat, and he's like, hell yeah, I got the cat and this place is going to blow up. I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> Little does he know the guards one, two, and three, uh, Franco's henchmen. They take him captive. I think they zip tie him, and they... 
kind of beat the shit out of him for a while, but of course it's Jason Statham, so we get an awesome action sequence where he gets out of his ties, he beats everybody up and gets out of there. I think it's implied he kills one of the guys, like just knocks him out and throws him into the water. So this is now everything's coming to a head. It's an hourglass with all the sand at the very end coming through once. And so the biker gang is there. They are dealing with Franco and Winona. Franco's like, I'm not doing any part of this. I'm not going anywhere. So basically, they just take Winona Ryder with him. They're like, well, then Cheryl's going to come with us and show us the way. And so at this point, Broker knows that the walls are closing in. So him and his daughter are in the process of packing up. Uh, It's time for them to skip town. And they even have Tito come out to help them with uh, just putting horses up and, you know, things that a friend would do in this situation. And I do love you. Tito's a good friend. Statham isn't. No, he does not tell him what he's getting. I was just him about into. to say, Tito's like, "Is there anything you should tell me?" And he's like, "Probably, but I'm not going to right now." <laughs> and so, it's at that point, like Tito's just like he knows the 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 score. He knows what he's getting into. He's like, "Well, it's like you said, white people shit." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the biker gang comes in. This really reminded me of parts of Ozark. They come in by boat. They unload. Winona Ryder's just like, I'm just going to stay here. You guys go do your thing. And it does not take long to break down. Tito gets assaulted, uh, but actually comes back with a fucking Friday the 13th Part 3 kill where he takes a (laughs) pitchfork and impales one of the bikers. And then he goes to hit the horn to notify or to alert Statham that shit's popping. And then he gets shot, which I was really sad because I did think he died. I was spoiler alert, he does not, and I was actually pretty happy about that. Yeah, I, I, th- I was surprised to begin with that he had made it that far. Uh, they 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 allowed him to have a kill and then move on from there because I thought that it was going to be one of those things where like he stabs the guy, but then the guy shoots him. But no, yeah. they they let him have a full on hero moment and then go and and warn Statham on top of that. I hope they clean that up, like. Or else Maddie would just like walk in there to see her horse and this guy's just impaled on a pitchfork against the wall of the barn. I don't think by the time this movie's over, I, I think Maddie's seen desensitized. <laughs> yes. Yeah, by the end she's like, pull the trigger, do it, shoot him. Yes. Um <laughs> I we'll get to that in real talk. And yeah, so the shit goes awry. It's Jason Statham in a shootout with these bikers, and he tells his daughter, call nine one one. And then, you know, hide. So Winona starts freaking out, Cheryl. And I have, like, it's one of the only lines of the movie I wrote down in full of um, she calls Gator and she's like, this is like, everything's fucked up. This has gone wrong. He's like, what do you mean? It's like, there's just, there's way too many bullets firing all over the place. And then he's like, well, what are you going to do? And she says, fuck this noise. I'm out. Like, and that's, uh, that like is a sound drop for the summer of Winona. I wrote it down as well. (laughs) I said, I wish my text tone was Winona saying, fuck this noise, man. I'm out of here. Delivered with such conviction. And it's one of those things we always talk about. Like, you know, people think it's funny to make people like Helen Mirren or Robert De Niro (laughs) say like funny words and stuff. And, you know, so you would think Winona Ryder saying, fuck this noise, I'm out would be absolutely preposterous and laughable. And it comes off as just like this awesome moment in the movie because it's like you believe she is that character for like if for no other part of the movie, you believe she is Cheryl at that part where it's just like it's so genuine of 
some white trash, you know, recovering junkie trying to get out of a sticky situation. It's just absolutely tremendous. Again, I wonder if if it's also her performance is just benefiting from the fact that we just watch her in The Crucible. And in The Crucible, her language was so different. (laughs) And also, to to that point, you and I had differing opinions on her performance in that Mm -hmm. movie. Talk about, like, believability and whatnot, like... I did not believe she was Abigail. I do believe she's Cheryl. That's like the big difference here. It's fantastic. So what this leads to is Maddie and trying to flee and get away. She comes across Cheryl and Winona Ryder's character and uh, explains the situation. And she's just like, all right, well, we got to go. I really think she doesn't know what else to do. So she just takes uh, Maddie captive and puts her in the I forget what that's called in a boat, the underpass or under storage. She puts her like in the bunker the of this boat and ba- the boat yes, basement. the boat basement and uh, takes off and Statham is too late to the game because is, is it Frank Grio he gets in the MMA fight with? Yep, that's that's okay. it. He's, he's the, the last one left. That's what I thought. The lighting was just really dark, so I couldn't make out if it was him or not. But it's they get into an MMA fight like uh, <laughs> with a knife. <laughs> At one I point, well, the finisher is is not MMA approved. That's that's the next step, the next logical step in the mixed martial arts game. But like at one point, I was like, "Oh, good float over," because like Statham like <laughs> switches position on him. It's is that when he like lifts him and then slams him on the. On no, the I did shout. I did yell Rampage when he did that because uh, Contrarian's favorite Rampage Jackson from the A team, his probably his most or second most famous fight finish is. Exactly that. A guy got him in a triangle choke and he picked him up just like that and slammed him so hard it knocked him out. Like he hit his back of his head so hard it knocked him unconscious. So anytime I see someone powering out of a triangle choke, it's very customary to shout Rampage. Did that happen before or after Homefront? Did Rampage take it from Statham or did Statham take it from Rampage? Well, uh, okay, so that happened in like 2003 or 2004. But um, it was definitely so comical the way Rampage did it that it's been a copied trope in video games and movies alike since then. Just it's so brutal. I'll have to send you the clip of it. It, it looks like it's it's way more violent than what happens in this movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so afterwards, he transitions to like an arm bar on Frank Grio, and then he breaks his because like Frank Grio is holding a knife. And then so he like breaks his arm in the arm bar and then sits back up and then takes takes Frank Grio's broken hand, broken arm and just starts stabbing him with it. So he's essentially stabbing himself. It's just absolutely fantastic, ridiculous 80s action bullshit. Love it. Yeah. But with a modern twist, because obviously MMA was not a prevalent sport in the 80s. So it was (laughs) Stallone basically and whoever the fucking choreographer was for this movie being like, well, we need some ridiculous kill. But we need to give it a modern twist. Like all that was missing, Sly should have like scripted. I don't know. Statham would have to say something like, "Give me a hand" or something like that. There, this was just lacking some really corny one-liner. But I understand he was in uh, duress. His his daughter was being kidnapped by fucking someone from the Salem witch trials. So he had to. <laughs> Well, also, I think that uh, Statham does get a few one-liners here, but they're not as prevalent as your average 80s movie or even 90s movie um, because of, uh, I think, the idea of what his daughter is witnessing is always weighing on him. Um, before he gets to Frank Grillo, the, you know, before she gets to Winona Ryder, uh, Maddie is running and there's a guy chasing her and the guy's about to shoot her from behind and then... Uh, Statham shoots the guy 
And then Maddie turns and basically she looks at her father with the smoking gun. She puts the pieces together yeah. and Statham looks ashamed by having killed this guy who was, you know, what else were you going to do? He's about to shoot well, his There's daughter. so much power in that moment. You can tell he had kept his true identity shielded from her until that moment. And she right. sees him in the moonlight for what he really is. <laughs> I'm I- a monster. <laughs> Because it's my name. <laughs> I could have really used, though, yeah. if we wanted to take this full over the top, the way they would have locked eyes would have been through the hole in the guy's head. Like when he shot through the <laughs> the guy's head, they would have seen each other through that. That that was sorely missing. Yeah. And then, and then you know, Frank Grillo shows up and tackles Statham and ruins the moment. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that the, the movie establishes that Statham is not in the headspace to throw quips. He's just there to to get the job done, which I think when you say that's kind of the the Statham, um, I guess persona. I know he he quips in his action movies, but for the most part, he he always strikes me as more laconic than you know even somebody like Stallone or or Schwarzenegger. Yeah, definitely. The Expendables is definitely like his most uh, quippy performances, and I, yeah, a lot of his thing is his cool factor, like. Right. Um, He'll kill someone and then, you know, adjust his cufflinks or straighten his collar or something like that. Or he'll just do a bunch of cocaine and wear a really awful wig but have a very good performance (laughs) in a movie. Um, So Winona, it's so weird. She's like – so her character in this movie is not a druggie, but she definitely has a fried brain. And essentially what happens is she just freaks out. She doesn't know what to do. She's like, these guys are going to kill you. She's telling this to the little girl. And then she's just like, well, I'm going to take you. And she like kidnaps her because Maddie doesn't want to go with her. And then takes the boat back to Gator's cookhouse. And at this right, point, she doesn't take just, her to safety. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> because she doesn't know what to do. And uh, so she takes him to Gator's cookhouse. And this is where it kicked in. I was like, oh, God, that place is still rigged to blow up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, choosing your words and like having understandable characters. Obviously the word retard and retarded is not something that is thrown around too often. And, you know, like when I was a little kid or something like that, but right. It still, there's something comedic about him yelling. Are you fucking retarded at her in the sense of there's, you can see the white trash nature of just how like awful of a person he is. And that's what I was uh, about to say. Well, it's also uh, uh, when was it? It was a it was a recent episode where we mentioned something similar. That it was just the it's not comedy, but the reaction of hearing something that by now we know that that's not something that you hear in movies, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I guess the transgressiveness of hearing a character say that, even though it's it very much fits the character, you know, that's a hundred percent something that Gator would say. Yeah, and uh, but still, it's just like shit. We don't hear this in movies anymore, so it's just uh, kind of like that nervous laughter of like, what "The fuck did he just say that? <laughs> did he just call her that?" <laughs> yeah, it's it's just kind of out of nowhere too, and his character is just melting down because of it. Um, oh, it was uh, the dilemma, the use of gay. They, that was what we were talking about. With yes, them. we were like, uh, "How much <laughs> further are we gonna take this?" <laughs> yeah, so um, Gator is his world is imploding around him, and he's just. This deal's gone awry. His girl has cost him, you know, a lot potentially more by bringing a witness to all this to to his cookhouse. For some reason, oh yeah, uh, 
Kate Bosworth shows up because she's like Jones in really bad, right? No, she uh, no, she shows up because she she caught, caught wind of everything that was going on and wanted to see if Gator right. She heard about the shootout and that and and by now the police has reported that the that Maddie is missing. So she's heard that there's a girl missing. Uh, God bless. So she's just going because she knows that in a way she started this. She she sicked Franco and his people on Statham and the little girl. So she just comes to check those fucking. <laughs> White trash people that just have a CB set up where they scan the police radars all night or the police Probably. CBs. <laughs> but they that have was... a. I mean, they, they do give her a, a sort of. A, this doesn't come out of nowhere, right? Uh, She's in the process of getting clean. I forgot that because her husband told Gator to stop yes. saying to her. Yeah. Right. But also, I was going to say, Statham has started to win her over throughout the movie uh you know she he invited her and her son to the birthday party he said he would buy a new shirt for the kid um when they're leaving the birthday party you can tell that she's less angry at him than she was before you know she gives him the nod he gives her a wave uh and then uh (laughs) smash cut to a static shot of him just going at it from behind in a garage somewhere (laughs) (laughs) the one thing that that Gator and Statham had in common <laughs> is their preference of lovemaking. It's quick, aggressive, and in an empty garage. <laughs> Fully clothed. <laughs> Fully, yeah. Just it's like uh, the nose. The people that wear the mask and have their nose hanging out. Statham <laughs> and Gator. It's just the wieners out, and that's all. Fully clothed, otherwise. Yeah, uh, but I, I bought it. I bought that she would show up concerned. Um, even though this is not what I would expect from the Kate Bosworth that we see at the very beginning of the movie. I think that the movie did enough with her character throughout it that uh, when he shows up, I was like, oh, cool. She's here to save the day instead of, oh, shit, it's going to get even worse. Uh, sort of the same thing with, with Winona. I bought that she would be somewhat concerned for the kid. There's enough instances in the movie where she seems concerned about how violent things could get. Uh, even when Frank Grillo shows up in town and he's kind of going over the plan, Winona is the one that says, well, what about the kid? And Franco's the one that goes, well, no witnesses. So yeah, <laughs> too bad for the kid. So I bought in both instances that Fletcher and Stallone gave these two women, two somewhat similar, somewhat different women, uh, a redemptive arc of sorts. They're nowhere near as bad as Franco. No. And... Yeah, she shows up. She sees the kid there. She's like, what the fuck are you doing? This kid's coming with me. And in this fracas, she goes to turn on the shop lights in the <laughs> cookhouse. And that uh, triggers the bombs that Broker had made. And so the whole house goes up and the, the whole operation goes up in flames. And you can just see Franco's face here and read his body language. It's just like, well, it's like this slow motion <laughs> shot of his reaction to it. And in this, it's just him going, well, everything's been taken from me. So I'm going to kill this kid now and just flee the scene and takes the kid. There's a scuffle of sorts, um, a little rough up where Cassie is trying to rescue uh, Maddie and she gets shot in in this fray of sorts. And he has no remorse on his face. Just grabs a girl, gets in the truck and heads off. Winona uh, Ryder looks more concerned than Franco does about Kate yes. Bosworth being shot. And unfortunately, this is the last we see of Miss Winona Ryder. She just kind of faded into the night, and the fate of Cheryl Mott remains unknown to this day. And uh, Don't we see her? Um, don't they load her in a police car at the end? You're right. You're right. When they're doing the, the montage. 
Yes, I completely forgot about that, but she does get loaded into a squad car. So her fate is what she deserves for helping orchestrate <laughs> such a horrendous uh, intended <laughs> crime. She may have been uh, doing it under protest, but she still did it. Yeah, it's the there's so many cases of that. Um, fuck, Paul Bernardo's wife, Carla Bernardo. Uh, the they were a couple in Canada that like kidnapped, murdered, disemboweled several young girls, and her she's free now. He's still in prison, but she's free. She's and her her whole like thing was just like oh. I was just madly in love with him. I just thought I should do what he told me to do. And it's like, bitch, that's not a real defense. You killed people. You kidnapped these teenage girls and cut their bodies apart. And that's kind of like, I, I could see the defense of Cheryl. If this movie had like a sequel and we start with her like in prison with Chug Zito, uh, her lawyer's just like, you're going to get off. This was a crime of passion. You'll be fine. And it's like, it, she kidnapped a child and she orchestrated this thing that by all intents and purposes should have killed uh, Tito and Broker. So, yep. Yeah. I just forgot cuz it's such a quick shot. We do see her. They had to call her back cuz they originally like like, "Oh fuck, we don't explain what happened to Cheryl." So that's how she's wearing a wig in that scene. Um <laughs> So Gator takes off with Maddie and during this as he's leaving, it's hilarious. It's like, you know, getting to a in college, you would get to a party just as a girl you were trying to smash was leaving. Like uh Gator's pulling out of this like dirt road and Statham comes in. Because once he got on the CB, he heard like where his daughter was. He just like mm-hmm. stole a cop car. And like uh, we get a shot of Clancy Brown at that point looking to his holster and saying, <laughs> might have to use he like looks he he blows the dust off of his gun, just and he, he says, might have to actually use this. <laughs> so it's a car chase. And, you you know, we talk about subverting expectations, too. Like, you expect at this point some huge chase scene to come of it. And it's like 30 seconds. Like, Statham gains on them. Uh, they start going over a bridge that's in the process of being raised uh, under orders from the sheriff. And Statham just, like, flips his car and gets in a pretty horrifying car accident. Uh, Gator slams on the brakes, gets out, goes to kill Broker. Because, again, at this point, he's just lost it. He has nothing left. <laughs> Once the meth's gone, he, he's nobody anymore. So, But he has, he has a moment of, of I guess, a, a brief moment of humanity where he tells Maddie, stay away, stay in the car. I don't want you to see this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say because she gets out and he's like, it's the distraction. It causes him to be distracted. So Statham kind of gets his comeback and rolls him up, but he does. He's just like, he's like, I don't want to do this, but I'm a man of principle and you've cost me all this. So, and then, yeah, he tells the girl, he, he tries to at least shield her from, in many ways, he's doing a bar- a better job of parenting than Jason Statham has done up until this point. <laughs> uh, and meanwhile, uh, Clancy Brown is across the bridge just taking aim. Fumbling, trying to learn how to use a shotgun. <laughs> or it's like a I think it's a sniper rifle or something. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I did get excited. This is just real talk. I, I thought Clancy Brown was going to have a moment here where if he wasn't going to kill Franco, at least he was going to shoot him to where that would give Statham the, the opportunity to get a, oh man, you know, well, to get up and beat him. But, but no, he when doesn't they started- get to do that. No, I was about to say, when they started tussling, that's when I got like nervous. I was like, oh, fuck, he's going to accidentally shoot Jason Statham. <laughs> and so, yeah, I definitely, Clancy Brown trying to figure out how to use a gun definitely heightened the interest uh, in this particular scene. 
I don't know why like there wasn't just like the guy with the mega horn trying to, the bullhorn rather trying to talk him off the cliff and being like it's like have you seen Winona Ryder? She lets you have sex with her. You should not like do this. You have a lot to live for right now. And Statham gets up. There's a, a tussle of sorts as there's prone to be in these types of movies and he just like beats the shit out of him. It, there's no like art to it or anything. Uh, there's no contest. Also, I mean, honestly, would you believe it if if James Franco put up a fight? No, that's per- that's what makes it awesome. It's like that's I fucking hate these movies that have like these weaselly uh, antagonists, and then they in situation like like Bane. I believe Bane can beat up Batman, but like that whole idea of it, like I um, with this, it would have just killed the illusion of once they finally locked up, if like it was this really competitive back and forth slugfest, it rewards you as a viewer seeing this and like um, the comeuppance, but also just like the, yeah, of course he's just going to beat the shit out of him. It's Jason (laughs) Statham and James Franco. So yeah, he's just like mercilessly pounding away, uh, pulls a gun, puts it to his head. And I thought we were going to kind of get like a seven style ending where Statham shoots him and then has to go to prison, but looks up, sees his daughter, discards the gun and he tells Gator, she just saved your life. And then <laughs> home front. <laughs> and then let's, let's set up the sequel. So you get the, the little montage, just tying up all the loose ends uh, as why can't we be friends place in the background. You see a, uh, <laughs> Tito getting loaded into, into an ambulance. Uh, Kate Bosworth gets loaded into an ambulance. Winona gets loaded into a police car. And then Jason Statham hugs uh, his daughter as uh, fireworks go off in the background, I guess. Oh, and then uh, Clancy Brown has people. Clancy Brown holsters his gun, relieved, <laughs> and then goes to pick up the bloody uh, body of James Franco, who's still just passed out on the bridge he looks at the gun and he says whoo that was a close one (laughs) and then smash cut to statham just giving it to maddie's teacher in a garage somewhere (laughs) that that's the one thing i think that doesn't pay off everything pays off the the cat the the drug uh the drug warehouse you know i thought uh, Susan is her name. I don't know if she's the teacher or the principal or whatever she's just this fine-ass redhead I thought uh, counselor Okay, that makes more sense. I thought it was Michelle Trachtenberg when it first cut to her the first time. I was like, what? But Buffy's sister? Isn't that Michelle Trachtenberg? Isn't that the girl from uh, Eurotrip? Yeah, Buffy's sister. Yeah. No, she does not look like her at all. I said when it first cut to her. It's not like I thought that until the credits rolled. <laughs> but like, I got real excited, but uh, she was played by uh, Rochelle Le- Lefebvre. I don't know. Apparently, she's in twilight but whatever the case i think it's implied to the viewers that at this point statham's motivations are no longer carnal but more of (laughs) of retribution because um yeah we get the montage we do find out what happens to the cheryl character franco's going away for a long time um fucking clancy brown slips on a banana peel somewhere and his gun accidentally (laughs) goes off into the air (laughs) And uh, he just hates the paperwork. I think that's that's it. You know, every yes. time you shoot your gun, you have to. <laughs> the backstory is he accidentally like shot a guy in the knee. He didn't die or anything, <laughs> but he shot like an innocent guy in the knee. And he's like, I'm never going back to that. I'm never dealing with all that shit again. 
and then Tito, it's not here. We skipped past it, but like when we find out Tito's still alive, he's in bad shape. But his it's his last line of the movie where he just goes fucking rednecks, which I <laughs> enjoyed. But I would have preferred he just said fucking white people. I, that that would have been like the the way to win. But anyway, yeah, like you said, to set up the sequel here, uh, home back. They have broker <laughs> goes like uh, Chuck Zito. Uh, it's like you got a visitor and he goes to the little window gimmick where they call through and then he turns like as white as a ghost like his face and his whole the expression drains from it and then we cut and we see on the other side it's Jason Statham broker and he reassures him I'll be waiting for you when you get out because he knows he was the one that sent the word and so sadly that did not come to fruition Memorial Day weekend 2015 was not greeted with home front two they're just waiting for uh you know how can they integrate this into the avengers and now that phase four is just bringing a lot of new faces i really like this movie please don't kill it for me (laughs) you know what like obviously i don't want anyone to die but this is the type of movie that i fully expected when it cut to black for the credits to go, I this is the type of movie I fully expected to see in memory of somebody. Like that's like <laughs> I, I don't know who or why, but it's it just that's what I thought was coming. And then when it did, like executive producer, I was like, oh, there's no in memoriam. <laughs> This is a new type of role for you. Um, was it like were you uncomfortable doing? Totally challenging. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It was well. That's sort of why I did it was because it was something that I never done and never really expected to get offered that that type of the type of role and uh, this genre of movie is very new for me. So um, it was fun. It was fun, and it was great to try something that I hadn't really tried before. You know. Did you have fun being a Um. Yeah, I did, and a big reason was because this girl right here is fantastic and a real trooper, and made. She's so lovely and sweet and adorable and talented. It made it both harder and easier to manhandle her sort of like I do in the film because she was such a trooper. I was very protective of her, but I also, she was such a trooper, she let me, you know, be bad with her. All right. I am recording for Real Talk. Contrarian's Corner didn't go, man, we had like fucking an hour and 45 minutes of Contrarian's Corner for The Crucible. It was like at least an hour and a half, right? Yes, it was 140, the final. But but there were moments of, you know, just us. That, you know, there was stuff that was not Contreras Corner. It was just us talking about something. So so we didn't get that much out of Contreras Corner for uh, Homefront, but we were able to <laughs> definitely get a lot out. Based on the energy you brought to it, I don't think you hated it, but I definitely think we'll have slightly <laughs> differing opinions here. I didn't hate um, it. I mean, you know, Alex, when was the last time I hated a movie we did? Can you remember? Because I can't, but of course... I'm sure I would just have to look down our Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. I didn't hate it. No. Yeah, you did. I did not you, hate it. Well, I was about to say, though, like, especially for longtime listeners of our podcast, they, they're going to know just by this movie alone, this is my type of movie more so than it is your type of movie. So I don't think we're breaking any ground here, but um, uh, we both really did not like Boyhood. That was the last That's time true. we were just like... But not hate, like... No, no, no. It, it's been a, 
I, Hangover I'm three. I probably like I, I strongly disliked Hangover three <laughs> more than Boy. I'm just going over our like. Yeah, it's been a while since we've done something. Duplex. That was the movie Ooh. that I felt like I wasted my time watching it. Yeah. Like that. That made me mad that we had a podcast. <laughs> like I was, I was tested my friendship with uh, Steve Williams too, not Doctor <laughs> Death. Um. So. Homefront, released in 2013, the year of Franco, apparently, with his goddamn 10 movies. And um, I was sincere that I think this complements his performance in Spring Breakers also, and I think it's kind of fitting that they were both in the same year. Um, Directed by Gary Fletter. Uh, Again, like we discussed uh, on the last episode, I can't remember if it made the cut or not, so if it didn't, I apologize. Uh, Very limited filmography. He directed some television, but as far as film goes, uh, Things to Do in Denver, When You're Dead, Kiss the Girls, Don't Say a Word, Imposter, Runaway Jury, The Express, The Ernie Davis Story, which for some reason I remember that coming out when I was in Denton still because uh, people I worked with really liked it. And then Homefront, Homefront being the last film that Mr. Fletter has directed, uh, again, based on Homefront by Chuck Logan, a novel and that uh, was written for the screen by Sylvester Stallone, John Rambo. How does this come together? I'm curious. Well, he originally developed the screenplay as an installment for, like it was going to be a Rambo sequel. He was going to kind of alter it to be... Like a Rambo type thing. Huh. Yeah. Which, again, it shouldn't be shocking that Sly's original plan was to have him at the helm of it. And uh, Usuals was released November 27th, 2013. Getting in right before, right at award season there. Right uh, right in time. And uh, For your consideration, who would have gotten like... You know, Winona for supporting, Kate Bosworth for supporting. Statham wasn't powerful enough to be best actor, but Franco definitely for, uh, I would say Franco for supporting, Bosworth for supporting, and um, Stallone for best adapted screenplay. <laughs> A budget of $22 million, which I kind of went back and forth on, that it seems relatively low for the people that are involved in the type of movie that it is. If this was like, a, you know, a fucking drama or just some really quirky indie movie where it's just these guys talking for two hours. I wouldn't be surprised with that budget, but there's a lot of practical effects. And again, this is an A-list cast. This isn't just Jason Statham and a bunch of fucking video game movie actors. The box office return was only about 50 million, which kind of disappointing. I I don't know what else would have been out at that point in time to kind of take the shine off of it, but still made over double its budget back. I remember like the the big standees with you know they're basically the movie poster. I remember us making fun of it because this poster is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Like I just don't remember it actually playing in the theater. You know, same. I remember the marketing campaign more than <laughs> the actual theatrical run. Especially like because that I still would have been there and I was still been very active in the projection booth and I always like Pretty much any movie that was released between 2007 and 2014, I have like some scene that I've seen, like just kind of walking around and looking through the window. I don't remember shit about this movie, but you would have written down when the the Franco when our writer sex scene happened. Oh. So you make sure to be <laughs> if, on that projection window. If you think I didn't know when the Mila Kunis, Natalie Portman sex scene was in Black Swan (laughs) for the each showing of that, you are sorely mistaken. Now, back to Homefront, back to the the lecture (laughs) at hand here. 
speaking in terms of Miss Winona Ryder, who, of course, is the reason we're doing all this, uh, she said she accepted the part as it allowed her to explore something new, which I think we can both agree with to a certain extent. Yeah. She was quoted as saying, what's creepy is that she's sober and she's still running this drug operation with James Franco's character. And to me, it's the epitome of evil in a weird way. If it's possible to be a victim and be diabolical at the same time, I've never explored that. There was also a slightly campy, yes, arm candy element to her that appealed to me. She's such a complete chick. She's what you think of when you hear the words biker chick. Which it's just so funny for what seems like such a nothing part that Winona, obviously that's like three sentences, but still uh, more thought than I would have put to it. I mean, yes, but also what I think is hilarious is that the idea that, oh, yeah, well, you know, I wonder what it would be like to play a victim that's also diabolical. And I know we have the benefit of having just watched it, but that's basically her character in The Crucible. (laughs) Yeah, but she's a lot hotter here. So I think I might have found why this movie didn't do that well. It uh, came out literally days after Anchorman 2, which racked up almost $200 million, And then the week after Homefront was when The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug, came out. Which, again, just because I don't care for it doesn't mean it didn't make a fucking billion dollars. That movie was like a box office sensation. So it seems like what happened was it was sandwiched in between two crowd pleasers, and then I guess kind of on the other side of that, it was, oh, and fucking Frozen was out at the same time too, so that's probably where most of it. So you're saying it never got the big house? No. No, it would have been Theater 7, or uh, 14 rather, excuse me. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I'm just reading this. It's just like a who's who of that year's award movies that came out around the same time. Nebraska, Philomena, Inside Lewin Davis. Ugh, American Hustle. So, <laughs> Last Vegas, remember that movie? I have a picture of the four of us, uh, you, me, Eddie, and Hadley, recreating the Las Vegas standing. Oh, that's right, that's right. So anyway, that answers why this didn't really perform. Man, it, yeah, I don't get the point of the November release. Uh, I mean, a movie like this that's so inconsequential, it's you're not going to find an embarrassment of riches in terms of like, legacy and backstories and trivia and stuff like that but it's one of those that i'd be curious like why didn't you like release this on the fourth of july weekend or like why didn't exactly what i was thinking with the whole like american flag theme (laughs) memorial day weekend yes exactly like i don't think like november i think of like hot chocolate and sweaters and you know (laughs) uh rom-coms and not (laughs) this ridiculous poster so we'll circle back to Winona Ryder uh, in just a moment. I figure we'll get her out of the way since she had a fairly small part in this movie. So being that this movie was 43%, it does mean there are people like me out there that had a grand old time at it. Um, Julio, what were they saying about it? I had a, I don't know about a grand old time, but I had a an okay old time, fun old time. A gay old time? It was better than I expected, man. All right, so we have uh, Andy Leah from Daily Star UK says, nobody can write this stuff like Stallone and nobody can play it like Statham. Agree, disagree, Alex. I agree with the Stallone thing, like his ability to write screenplays for this type of movie and and can be consistent, like 
If a movie's written by <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, you should have no confusion about what you're getting into. Um, <laughs> did you ever see Rocky Balboa, the most recent? Or I, I guess he did. I, I've only seen the first one. Okay, uh, th- that's the the two I really like are the first one and Rocky Balboa, and that was kind of like that movie. I think way overperformed in the critical sense because everyone kind of came into it just like old Rocky, LOL. And uh-huh. but the screenplay is like fantastic, and uh, that's the one where he has like the really fi- the God so overquoted uh, monologue about it. it's not about how hard you can hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and get, keep getting up. So that kind of reinvigorated him, and since then, obviously, like the fallout from that was like the Expendables franchise, which the first two, the second one in particular, are fucking amazing. And uh, then it's just kind of that thing. It kind of got diluted. But like even the Rambo movies and stuff. Yeah, it's silly because it's this old fucker doing all this. But at the same time, it's it's exactly what you would expect. Who wrote Shoot 'Em Up? Well, while I look that up, I'll continue <laughs> on my point because that that to me would epitomize like the most uh, a modern Sylvester version. Stallone. Yeah, it was he used a pseudonym, Sly S. Um, the pseudonym Paul Giamatti. Paul, Paul Giamatti. So anyway, I was just about to say that's the only like other modern one that really comes to mind of like nailing this ridiculous type of movie. Michael Davis, who has is so inconsequentially doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Um, so yes, Statham. On the other hand, him being a leading guy is sometimes uh, iffy for me because I sometimes can tire of his shtick. The good news is is that the majority of his movies don't overstay their welcome. Uh, I guess now's a good time if any to bring up. This came dangerously close to overstaying its welcome, even at just an hour and forty minutes. Like towards the end, I was like, "All right, to keep my praise up, you guys are gonna have to wrap this up pretty quick." Because when they got into the car chase, I thought that was gonna add like another fifteen or twenty minutes onto the movie, and then like the mm-hmm. car chase was like. A minute long, and I was like, "All right, you guys are back in my good graces. We're we're good." <laughs> so yes and no to long uh, long answer to your short question. I think that I think it makes sense too because Stallone Stallone has a longer career, so you can you know you can look at that consistency more clearly. Um, all right, Ethan Alter from Television Without Pity says it's the most incongruous and enjoyably so good guy bad guy pairing since Philip Seymour Hoffman threatened to make Tom Cruise's girlfriend bleed and cry and call out his name in Mission Impossible 3 very underrated movie I was talking about that the other day I think um cuz that whole franchise Mission Impossible just took on a life of its own eventually mm-hmm. but man like people either forget or just don't know that Philip Seymour Hoffman was the bad guy in the third one in that exact scene that that critic cited was the scene I was talking about because that's the scene right where like Tom Cruise puts his head out the plane and he's like trying to mm-hmm. interrogate him and Hoffman's just like cool as a cucumber on the uh, on the Antarctic the entire time and then it's just like are you married do you have a wife a girlfriend because I'm gonna find her <laughs> and I'm gonna kill her all right Willie Waffle we've had Willie Waffle here before <laughs> Willie Waffle from WaffleMovies.com says, There are millions of people willing to pay good money to watch Jason Satham beat the living daylights out of James Franco. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Concise and to the point. And then finally, this is not a quote, because again, I was looking for something that would mention Winona. So I found this 
bigger review from uh, the New York Times by Manola Dargis. And I'm just going to read you the first paragraph. It says, uh, Nothing says Thanksgiving like a beat-em-up written by Sylvester Stallone in which Jason Statham gets to knock the stuffing out of James Franco. If you think that's a spoiler, you've either never seen an audience-pandering movie or the poster for Homefront, which shows a snake-eyed Mr. Franco glowering in what appears to be hell under an image of the stern-looking Mr. Statham overlaid with an American flag and embracing a child. The movie is as blunt an instrument as the poster, but it's also crammed with enough moving parts and unexpected distractions, in parentheses, when on a writer as a meth whore, to make it an indefensibly enjoyable piece of exploitation hack work. Alright. When on a writer as a meth whore. <laughs> She's not using. No. Which is interesting. It's um, It's the Walter White principle. Like, you, if you get fucked up on your own stuff, or if you're a druggie, you just kind of fall into the trappings of the game. Um, no, I, I mean, uh, these type of movies are always going to uh, alienate, or not even alienate, It's they're just going to turn off a subsect of movie viewing public and critics. Uh, critics especially, it's not as bad as it used to be. Like, I've told you... That like sometimes I'll just go and read uh, Roger Ebert's reviews of the Friday the Thirteenth movies just because he's so like vicious and visceral with them. They're, it's on YouTube and it's in the documentary about Friday the Thirteenth. His like the promo he cut on part four, it's just <laughs> amazing. But the, the reason I bring that up is because there's some people will just dispel these type of movies and just completely brush them to the side because they feel like they're too smart to just enjoy it. And, uh, yeah, obviously the timing of it, this movie coming out at Thanksgiving is weird. So I, I lend, lend him, uh, some credence on that point, but it's just a, a type of thing of, well, we'll get into it, I guess, with you and I, that some people just don't like these kind of movies and we have done movies like this that I, I don't always like the shoot 'em up action, you know, stupid popcorn movies because sometimes these things can be really mean spirited. Like, I, of course, I'm blanking on it right now, but like paint by numbers movies that have really like segments of hate speech dialogue that has no place or disadvantaged characters that they make fun of and exploit. It. But with this and like the the meth whore thing is not true either. And also, I think a lot of my appreciation for this is having been around a good amount of white trash in my life and places like my extended <laughs> families lived and seeing things similar to this that it makes me appreciate these characters is so good about not taking itself seriously but at the same time the people in it specifically Kate Bosworth, Winona and James Franco took it seriously so I think it kind of adds to it. Not to say Jason Statham didn't but I mean he's not stretching any muscles. Well and that's my whole point just being all things being equal he is not on the same level of acting as James Franco or Winona Ryder. So it's like you can see the the delineation between the two, like when we say like taking it seriously type thing. I believe he took right. it seriously. It's just his seriously is a different thing. So I guess before we get into your thoughts overall on the movie, we'll just go ahead and cover Miss Winona Ryder's performance because obviously she got some enjoyment out of it by that quote I read. <laughs> and uh, you can tell. I'm glad. You know, that was that was one of my questions, I think, going in. I was like, how do you how does Winona Ryder get to play this part? And I, I knew that the answer could have been just, well, you know, she, she needed she needed to play something. You know, it was like that was the best option out of what she had at the time. Cause this was 
this is prior to you know the full-on Winona sort of renaissance with Stranger Things and whatever else. This was her like getting kind of back into theatrical releases and all that stuff. But I'm glad that that quote. I mean, even if assuming that you know she's not just saying it to say it for you know at the, at the junket. Uh, yeah. I think that's cool that she found something that a character and she was like, I, I can do something interesting with this. Uh, reminds me of uh, Clint Eastwood when they completely different movie, but when they were talking to him about Gran Torino and they asked him why he was still playing, you know, characters in this movie. Cause he's really old. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, didn't you like, shouldn't you retire or hadn't you retired? And, yeah, specifically with Gran Torino, he, he just said, well, I kind of, you know, I read the script and I thought I, I can do some damage with this character. So yeah. I just played it. <laughs> a version of Winona reading the script for Homefront and going like, I, I can do something. I can make this character memorable. Yeah. Uh, which I think she does. Yeah. And it's um, because, yeah, her, this is two years removed from the dilemma. And then it looks like yeah, her filmography in the 2010s was extremely limited. But I think this is the type, a perfect role for something like that. If someone, because it, it what it does is it doesn't like force feed you anything, and it reminds you who the person is as an actor or actress. Because uh, she's in the movie for like 15, 20 minutes maybe on screen time, and mm-hmm. it just gives you like a taste, and you're like, like I I, I imagine people, you know. Fucking John Smith and Duluth that watched this movie walking out being like, man, I had forgotten about that Winona Ryder. This is a terrific reminder. I'm going to go home and watch Edward Scissorhands or something like that. And uh, I think she treated it with enough seriousness, too, in such a silly movie that it really... This movie, for me, is the sum of its parts, and a big part of that is her. And just like the little details, obviously, this isn't all her. It's, you know, the makeup and wardrobe and things like that, but like how her hair is... Like, always clearly that she, like, takes pride in her appearance, but it's still, like, frizzy and just nasty a lot of the time. It, staple of the white trash woman, but especially in the uh, the bayou area because of the humidity and whatnot. And uh, and getting to hear her say, fuck this noise, I'm out. I mean, that that might have been the peak of the summer of Winona. Well, the amount of, uh, the amount of F-bombs that she drops is substantially higher than any other movie of hers we've done so far, at least. I'm sure Little Women might might beat it, but damn it! I was gonna say, what are you talking about? She said "fuck" like a hundred times in the Crucible. <laughs> Why uh, thy not fuck me, John Proctor? Um, but yeah, that was it. it was fun. I went on, uh, completely blind into this, and I kept wondering when she was gonna show up and what her part was going to be. I think I remember reading that she was somebody's romantic interest. So I didn't know if she was going to be Franco's or Statham's. There was you know, no romance in what her and Stath- or Franco were doing. That was just <laughs> well, you know, uh, pure emotion. Yes, carnal interest. Uh, so then, of course, she showed up, and it was very clearly she was going to be on Franco's side. But uh, even then, I was like, is this going to be a small part? Is it going to be, you know? And she sticks around till basically the end of the movie. So that was that was nice. I I was wondering how we know Nae this movie was going to be and it was like just enough you know for about 40 minutes i was wondering if it was maybe a mistake and this does not belong in the summer of winona other than to show you where she was in 2013 (laughs) (laughs) but but no i think that it's it's there and it it gives us like a a character we haven't seen her play before at least this summer and also just it's just fun to see adult winona i 
I, you know, for the most part, I still, when I think Winona Ryder, I think 90s Winona. And that image is very different from the Winona post-2000, 2010, especially onwards. It's just now she looks like an adult. So uh, the kind of roles that she gets to play, the kind of roles that she gets offered are very different. Yeah. And it's uh, similar to the dilemma in that, like, obviously she has a bigger part in the dilemma, but because of what kind of movie it is and because she's not like the star, she really could have like rested on her laurels and just kind of phoned it in. But within the case of both movies, as we discussed with the dilemma previously, she really does give a genuine effort. And with this, it's, it's not as reaching. I think she shows a lot of different range in the dilemma as we talked about, but with this, it's like, yeah, she's great for what she is. Yeah. She doesn't get a, she doesn't get a scene here where she, she sits, stays them down and gives them the what for kills them. Like, gives them the this rundown. is how things are going to be. No, she tries to do it with Frank Grillo and uh, it just backfires. Yeah. I think that's covering that transitioning on the female side of the equation. Again, for having a relatively small part, I thought Kate Bosworth was excellent in this. Yes. I so now that we're in real talk, do you really what do you think of when you think of uh, Kate Bosworth? Do you really think Straw Dogs is that your your go to? I mean, it might be. That was the first thing I saw her in. Let me look at the rest of her filmography. Twenty one with our boy um, Jim Sturgis, James Sturgis. Yeah, always yes. walking in from somewhere else out of breath. I mean, I just like honestly, I just know her as Kate Bosworth. I think Straw Dogs is something that's like hammered into my mind because it was such a fucking beating of a movie and um god she was in movie 43 what a weird movie um, a lot of people were in movie 43 i said i i don't understand that either it's i've never understood how that movie was able to cultivate the cast that it had yeah i mean remember the titans blue crush um when a date with Tad Hamilton, she was like on a lot of marketing material that was specifically marketed for my age bracket in high school. So like I've never seen Superman returns. So that's probably ah. the one. Yeah. I know that you said that she's Lois Lane for you. But yeah. She's, well, she's just a kid. brunette for one thing in that movie. So that already like oh, takes duh, her out of Lois the usual. Lane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I thought um, she was really good in this. And again, it's a very, limited role but i thought she made the most of it with what she had and like her delivery and just like her whole aesthetic to use that word again is on point yeah the moment where she uh lets her kid accept the invitation to the birthday party i think it's particularly good Mm -hmm. because you can see in her face that she is very uncomfortable with the way that this has turned out (laughs) she was expecting another confrontation and instead she gets an olive branch and and now she's trying to figure out how to Take the olive branch without looking, yeah. you know, without looking like she's actually caving in. So she just lets the kid do it. She's like, "Hey, they're asking you; they're not asking me." And then instead of saying thank you when the kids are gone, she just brings up the blood on the shirt. <laughs> so it's just so good. It's such a good moment. Uh, yeah, there, there, there are things I like about this movie, Alex. Well, yeah, I was gonna say like obviously we have Franco and Statham yet to discuss. I think we kind of covered Jason Statham uh, in not just this episode but previous ones. But James Franco, man, he's just having so much fun in this. It's like that scene in the diner or whatever, the fucking breakfast place they go to. Like, that's legitimately like if there was one scene from this movie I had to pick and show someone, be like, this is cool. It would be that because you have Winona there kind of just like 
emoting to everything going on and then Statham being Statham, but then James Franco just being this huge prick. It's just, it's fantastic. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I I was not kidding. The corner is my favorite part of the movie. I think it's the best moment, uh, best acting. I mean, you get all your chips there, right? You you have the three main actors, and and on top of that, you have just the extra uh, beat of having a uh, Tito from yeah. the bar watching it, and it just adds an extra dimension to have the black character watching the white people being so stupid <laughs> and knowing it too. I mean, he's he's just laughing about it. So that was that was great. I'm I'm glad he didn't die. Yeah, it would have been really sad if the the lone black character died. So, I mean, I think as you and I both know about each other and longtime listeners of the podcast will know, for you and for me, this is not the type of movie that you would just like fire up. Like you're not going to just like on a Saturday afternoon to kill time if it's raining out, you're not going to watch Predator or you're not going to, you know, I love bad horror movies and uh but specifically to this, the dumb action movies that like the A-Team, God knows that I'm fucking over the moon about that movie. So it's all about preference and taste. I would, I would hope you'd at least give me that in the, the zeitgeist lexicon, the universe, the uh, dimension of dumb action movies. This one does enough to stay entertaining and is not just kind of ridiculously mind numbing. Like it's dumb, but it, it, it keeps itself somehow grounded yeah i mean i had fun it's that's separate from me thinking that it's a good movie and i Mm -hmm. think that part of it is just that i couldn't help but seeing missed opportunities that they could have taken without fundamentally altering the movie you know i it's uh it does its job as far as keeping things moving it's at 140 you know i never felt it dragging i did kind of tune out but in the last big action set piece before the car chase when it's just statham dispatching the random like army i was gonna say I, i think part of that the checking out right before the chase scene is how silly it looks because statham is like he pulls in right behind him and then has to do like a U-turn and go to chase him. It's so it, it like we all were missing is a shot of Statham like just missed him. And like it's so silly. That's what took me out of it. I didn't mean to cut you off there and derail your train of thought. Yeah, no. No, see, I, I was back with the movie by then because um uh, Kate Bosworth's uh, arrival and sort of rescue of the kid that was that that brought me back in. But it was just whenever it's uh, uh Statham just shooting random guys that we don't know. Uh, I was like, hey, I've seen this before, you know, and it's not doing anything yeah. new. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoy the the fight choreography. Uh, definitely when he beats him up at the, uh, at the gas station, that was pretty cool. When he's yeah. fighting them and he has his arms tied behind his back, that's cool. I was just see. I know some of it is my fault because I'm bringing in stuff to the movie that the movie it's not designed to to give me. Right, I, I bring these expectations where I'm just like, well, but but what are you? What are you saying? Why are you? Why do you exist? And the answer is, I exist to give the opportunity to Jason Statham to fight James Franco <laughs> and to yeah. kill a bunch of people, you know, and just have a good time. And that it does. That's and- the problem with like uh, the thing I tweeted about earlier before we recorded my excitement for this, and also like why I love this movie and movies of its ilk. These type of movies with A-list cast are fucking awesome. Like, obviously, I mentioned Shoot 'Em Up earlier. I mean, it's Clive Owen, Monica Bellucci, and Paul Giamatti. Uh, <laughs> so that's probably the best example because that movie like tanked financially and critically pretty much uh, because of what you're saying. 
you have a movie with Paul Giamatti, Clive Owen, and Monica Bellucci, so you come into it with wanting more. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's why historically, well, not historically, but at least in our lifetimes, like the ideas of these stupid action movies with a list cast have diminished. The A Team is another prime example. Like with the exception of Rampage, everyone that was like a star in that movie was like a legitimate actor at that point. Uh, even Sherarto Copley, because all he had done was District <laughs> was Nine, and he was fucking awesome. <laughs> well, it, it, you remember the hype with him after District Nine? Everyone's like, "Oh my god, oh, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, like yeah. the next guy." But the the point is, you come into it like if it's just Jason Statham or just Sylvester Stallone, your expectations are like at one level. But then you get these actors that you know are capable of like greatness, and then so you watch something that isn't at that level and you know like you said with missed opportunities and stuff we, we might be talking about two different things but it's just like i think it's so hard to subvert your expectations when you have a winona writer when you have a you know a liam neeson or any of these kind of movies that i've mentioned so far are you speaking of like things from just like a screenplay or uh, like a plot perspective yes some of it and you know it's a little bit of that definitely 100 percent on the winona writer side you know because even when you look at uh, what's the most, you know, Mr. Deeds might be the most superficial thing of hers that we've seen uh, this summer. And even then, one, I knew exactly what to expect. It was an Adam Sandler movie. And even and as far as Winona Ryder goes, I was like, all right, well, she's doing like a silly comedy. I, I can wrap my mind around that and as a justification for the movie. Especially um, the time period, too. It, it was like mm-hmm. fitting for her career to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But here, I, I just... You know, to cast another writer on this part is kind of weird. I, I can I can totally get you know her having that small part in let's say Black Swan, but to me casting her here is kind of like casting her as Spock's mom in Star Trek. It's like, why? <laughs> you know, you. I mean, I it's it's stunt casting and it's cool and we'll get us talking about it. But really, you did not need. I'm glad that you got the talent to play this part, but you didn't need it. You know, you could have given it to someone else. I would have been fine. So in that case, yeah, I I certainly brought some expectations to that part of it. But I'll tell you, I'm I always forget how good James Franco can be. So whenever yeah, I go to a James Franco movie, I usually go in with low expectations and then he proves me wrong time and again. He's great in this movie. But I couldn't say I wouldn't tell you that I was expecting like prestige action movie, you know? And Statham, I knew exactly what to get and, yeah. and it's what I got. So I as far as action movie goes, like I was going with moderate expectations. But but there is a reason why I wouldn't go see the movie in the first place, you know, which is like, well, I know it's got to be kind of your standard action movie. Uh, what I can't help myself from thinking, even knowing what kind of movie it is, is as, as it, the narrative starts, I'm just, uh, maybe this is me getting old. Maybe this is just that, well, like we said, we just watched The Crucible that had like a lot of things that would make you think about stuff. And in this case, I, I kept thinking, all right, what is this movie saying about uh, violence and Statham racing his kid and you know the movie is designed in a way to make you think that it's against this violence I guess every there's constant shots to close-ups of the little girl witnessing violence in slow motion and there's a reaction there's emoting on her part to where you think that the movie is building up to saying violence is wrong you know this is wrong this is Statham might be well-intentioned but he is kind of fucking up his kid <laughs> with this lifestyle 
but it never gets there, right? I mean, when when it gets to the end, and I told you we're going to come back to this when we're doing Contrarian's Corner. When it gets to the end, and he's about to kill Franco, and then he looks at the little girl, and the little girl is just kind of, like, shocked, and then he doesn't kill Franco. To me, that was not earned at all, because that girl has <laughs> gone through some shit. And to me, it would be so much more powerful if he looks at the girl and he sees that the little girl wants him to kill Franco. And that's when it hits him. Oh my God, what have I done to her? And then he doesn't kill Franco because he sees what what the movie, what the movie, what, what his life, what his behavior has done to this girl. You know, he's completely stripped her of her innocence. It's not a huge change, but you do that and suddenly the movie to me has a way that it doesn't have right now. You know, right now everything is an excuse for the for the action set pieces and the cool dialogue changes and whatever. But if you actually make it about a little girl that's trapped in this violent world with a father that doesn't know any better, you know, he's he's just trained to react to every problem in a violent way, you know, and he kind of tries to learn a different way. They tell him in this town, the best thing you can do is apologize. Otherwise, things are going to escalate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all those elements are there to make a movie that's deeper, which is, I know, insane to ask of this movie. <laughs> it, it is not, you know, the filmmakers are not interested in it, the, uh, in doing that. The audience that would come to watch this movie is yeah. not interested in that. This movie is there to just show you, you know, Jason Statham kicking ass and everything you get above that, you should just be grateful for, which mm-hmm. I am. But as I'm watching the movie, I'm like... I just wanted more, you know. And but but that's not the case with every action movie because I was thinking I was like most action movies are like that. You don't really get like a lot of death, uh, you know, a lot of meat out of the action movies. And it's like, okay, what action movies do I love? Die Hard. You know, Die Hard doesn't, you know, you'll you'll read screenplay uh books that tell you Die Hard is, you know, about fucking greed and you know John McClane's relationship to his wife. And it's like, yeah, that's there, but that's not really what the movie's about. The movie's about you know, Bruce Willis being trapped with the terrorists in the in the it, it's about a cool gimmick. And it's a really smart script, but it's not like it has a whole lot of, you know, weight. Uh how about uh, Face Off? I love Face Off. I mean we know we did an episode on Face Off. It's not about you know, the repercussions of violence in Travolta's family or anything, you know, but it's fucking bad shit, insane crazy, and it's so much fun. It's so over the top. I don't think that either of those things apply to Homefront. I don't think it's smart in the way that Die Hard is smart, you know, smartly put together. And I don't think it's as over the top as Face Off, which would, you know, really draw me in. It's just, it's just well made, well performed by people that are doing better than they need to. But when it's over, I'm just like, yeah, that was an action movie. <laughs> Essentially, you're just validating that Terminator 2 is the greatest action movie of all time, if not the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> Terminator 2, for all my problems with it, it does have that 100%. That movie is about something. Yeah. It's about many things. Yeah. It's good. Edward Furlong, best supporting actor. (laughs) (laughs) That's my main thing I remember. Let's not push it. I remember you like texting me watching it. You're like, he's so bad. I'm like, of course Julio would find the one thing to bitch about of the greatest movie of all time. (laughs) Uh, No, and, and that's... A lot of what you're saying, you know, one, yeah, just you go into movies and sometimes you can't help but try to read it. But then like in in ways that it maybe was never intended to be read. But a big part of that is exactly what I was saying. And you were also uh, acknowledging was when you have 
a set level of of talent in your movie, and this is like across the board. You know, when you have n- names of a certain notoriety attached to a project, that means that immediately the expectations are going to go up to the level of that, and that's that is not always realistic in and of itself. But for people like me that get off on novelty movies like this, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> like it's this. This movie that, you know, 10 years from now, barely anyone's going to know about. And I'll be like, dude, there was this fucking awesome action movie that had Jason Statham, James Franco, uh, Kate Bosworth, and Winona Ryder. And I'm like, what? Like, this is the type of movie that, you know, 15, 20 years from now, people will think, like, hear and be like, that sounds insane. Like, you know, assuming (laughs) the respective careers keep going on the way they have. The fact that it doesn't have a director of any notoriety or anything like that, too, it just it seems like it was just a perfect storm for the period when Nona's career was in, Jason Statham just being the action guy, Kate Bosworth being available, and James Franco saying no to any script that came his way. <laughs> it's it's interesting. And I think that when I was watching it, I was so enamored by the novelty of it all because of what it was and like who was involved that it definitely carried it. And then at the end of the day, the fact that there were these awesome action sequences, you got uh, Winona's good, like really dedicated performance. And then just Franco being great. It's funny. You said that with you forget how great he can be. He's kind of turned what I'm talking about on its ear about expectations because he's done movies at every position of the spectrum of like from quality to shit to like comedy to drama to you know melancholy type shit and it's so he's definitely mastered the art of like people don't know what to expect when they see him anymore which it is probably like meal yeah oh god i mean i haven't <laughs> i don't know if i ever listened to that episode back just because that movie was so bad but like if i remember correctly what we talked about in that is like what was he thinking <laughs> He's like not bad in it per se, but it's just, and that's kind of the story of a lot of his career. And obviously I'm not going to tell you he's better in this than he is in Spring Breakers, but having them so close together, I think is fitting. And it makes me question why more people haven't cast him as like some sort of bad guy. And in both cases, I think both of those movies reward you as a viewer of you have the notion, well, this guy's just a scrawny little, he weighs a fucking bucko five soaking wet. Why, why are people scared of him? And then in the end, in both movies, he's dealt with very quickly and resoundingly. I think that's uh, really important to it. Um, so because of what I'm saying, because he's so kind of weaselly and it's just perfect in this, he has like a shittier beard than I do. And like his hair is always kind of messy and he's got like those nasty tattoos that, you know, like his friends probably did for the character that is his mm-hmm. friends probably made for him. And, and it's like with Ozark, we've never gotten into too deep a discussion of Ozark, but it is like it, uh, the Langmores on that show mm-hmm. and those fucking white trash people that, sling dope and meth those are like the fucking grossest people there are man and like presenting them as like you do uh gus in um breaking bad it's like they're not distinguished businessmen like these people that sell fucking meth in the bayou of louisiana so i thought they nailed all that it it's dumb but again like with some of the movies we've done geely kept coming to mind when i was trying to think of like critiques and in the sense, in the sense of both of those movies take a paint by numbers script, but Homefront handles it in a completely different way of like, all right, we're not straying off the path at all at any point. 
We're sticking to what we're here to do, and we're going to deliver exactly what everyone expects us to deliver. Whereas with Geely, it was like, it's a romantic comedy, but, oh, we got this A-list cast, so we might as well use it to tackle these weird social uh, norms and like have a character that's mentally disabled in it. It's like, you should look at Homefront and Geely as examples of movies that, like, if you have a coloring book that's blank, it can turn out perfectly fine, or it can turn out a fucking just mess where all the lines are colored outside of and just looks like dog shit. So um, I don't know why, but I was whenever we do movies, I always I try to compare it to something we've done previously so I can make points that we can go back and like reference in our podcast history. So um, it is what it is. It, it Its length helps. It's just it's it's more fascinating than it is a good movie. And it, we're only seven years, not even seven years removed from this movie being made. And I can already say that due to its cast and like its presentation, it's more fascinating uh, than it is a good movie. And that's that's not me diminishing the quality of the movie. It's just kind of how it all came together and whatnot. Yeah, I, I have one last point of contention, though. And Uh-oh. that is the way it's shot. I don't like the way that Gary Flitter shot action here i kind of alluded to it a little bit in contrast corner but just the way I, I i think some people can get away with it i think i don't know i guess michael bay when you think of just the multi-cut sort of action sequence uh do you think of michael bay first i, I kind of feel like that's the the go-to but i don't know and yeah. here it, it's just comical and i don't think it means to be when you cut when you have you know i don't know five different shots of jason statham pulling his gun out, you know, you just like cutting them so quickly. It just, it's okay to convey chaos at one point, I guess, but this is the style through the entire movie. Everything is just over edited, over stylized. And I, I like that sometimes, but I don't think that it works here. It it gets in the way of the action. I think that the Statham and overall, I think the action choreographers were better off whenever you let them have a little bit of breathing room and you could actually see what they were doing. You know, I think that one of the reasons you couldn't really tell if it was Frank Grillo at, at that final fight, it's, yes, it's dark, but it's also, you know, the way that it cuts, is like, they're, yep. they're more, they're better ways of shooting that fight. And I think that more for economical. pretty much every, <laughs> yeah, I think that they're, for every action set piece in this movie, you can say that. There was a better way of shooting this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I guess I commend Gary Flitter for, picking a style and sticking with it all the way to the end. But to me, it just didn't work. And that's, you know, like you were saying, it's just a matter of taste. I think that it works for some people. Some people are like, if it didn't work for for people, then some action directors would have stopped doing it a long time ago, like like the shaky cam. There's a reason why it's still being done. It's because yeah. it just, there's a there's an audience for it. And that audience loves it. I think that the, the multi-cut sort of action thing, it's just... It has an audience. I can't imagine that it makes life easier for the director or for the editor. So obviously, if you're no. going through the trouble of doing it this way, it's because you believe in it, not because you're being lazy. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's that's fine. It just doesn't work for me. Even Michael Bay, like, you talk about having taste or, like, a, a specific taste, I should say, everyone's preferences. Yeah, with Michael Bay, he has that film style, but it took fucking – him like 20 years of filmmaking for it to work for me with pain and gain. I was like, Oh God, this is all Michael Bay, but it's finally amazing. <laughs> this is what it looks like when it works. <laughs> yeah. Which is, yeah. You want to talk about commending someone who's stuck with their, like their gut the entire time. And, 
I mean, compared to all his other movies, Pain and Gain made fucking 10 bucks, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so that was Homefront. And obviously, just due to the nature of a role in it, this wasn't as Winona heavy as some of our previous and upcoming episodes. But that concludes this installment of the Summer of Winona. Julio, what is next? Well, coming up next is you want to talk about Winona heavy? Uh, coming up next is Little Women, which <sighs> got her an Oscar nomination. And it's, I mean, she's first billing there, I would All imagine. Right. <laughs> I haven't watched it in a while, but it's. You know she's front and center, but it's it's a stacked cast. I don't know if you've looked at it, but uh, I'm pulling it up right there's now. There's a young Bruce Wayne in it. Christian Bale. Yeah. Oh wow. Was that from the '90s? I guess it would have been '94. I think. Okay. It's peak Winona. Yep. Oh god, looking at the box art for the fucking VHS, <laughs> outstanding. <laughs> so Winona, Kirsten Dunst, Claire Danes, Christian Bale, Eric Stoltz, Susan Sarandon. My God, Jillian Armstrong. Excellent. Well, that is on deck. As is customary at this point, we're going to move on to plugs. First and foremost, the festive years provide our opening and closing track, as well as some supplemental music during this summer of Winona. Thefestiveyears.com will provide you with all the information and please any and all potential festive years needs. Our friend Hans Rothgieser, he did our logo. He uh, He's an artist. He's a writer. He's a podcaster. He does everything. You can find out everything about his work at mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. He has zombie novels. He has three podcasts, uh, two of them in Spanish, Marginal and Nación Combi. Those are available on all podcatchers about Peruvian current affairs and economy. And then he has Living in Peru, which is about immigrants to Peru. That's in English. and That's on iVox. Uh, he keeps up with the show every now and then he'll send me a message letting me know what he thought of a recent episode uh i guess he just listened to the street fighter episode because he told me that the resident evil movies he said the first resident evil he would consider a good video game adaptation since we were kind of asking out there if there were any good ones i i think i might have seen the first one i know for sure i've seen the last one uh never played the games though so i really can't speak as far as man those are games that like uh i got so frustrated with either the first or second one on like the first generation playstation that i never revisited the franchise despite like everyone like oh my god resident evil 4 and resident evil 5 are like some of the greatest games ever and but i was burned so badly by those first few <laughs> games that i just couldn't do it um yeah paul ws anderson i mean y- you know what to expect he's <laughs> yeah He's like Jason Satham. I may not agree like with that Lester take, Stallone. but I appreciate him offering it. Um, I think that's the same episode where I mentioned that uh, there was a good period of time in Peru where you couldn't go out to movie theaters because of how dangerous it was yeah. due yeah. to terrorism. He told me that uh, he watched Basic Instinct uh, in movie theaters with some friends. And while they were watching the movie, there was a, a blackout because of a terrorist attack oh, <laughs> in God. the middle of Basic Instinct. I know. So he has that memory. <laughs> One of the girls that was with him was freaking out about it. And, uh, good times. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. When I think Basic Instinct, I just think of Sharon Stone. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, and our social media guru, curator, the head of the operation, Miss Zoe Perez, for 
setting up and operating a lot of our uh, Instagram channel, our channel page, what have you. Puts together some clips, uh, does some interactive stories for y'all. Much appreciated. Like I said on Twitter several times, uh, someone much prettier than Julio and I operates all that. So don't judge us just by our looks. There's a lot more to the story. Uh, she's also taking over Facebook. So if you haven't visited our Facebook page, oh, yeah. now might be a good time. That is a uh, daunting same. task. I know. So it's just Contrarian Prime on Instagram, Contrarian Prime on Facebook. Just look it up. Uh, so, Alex, do you have any plugs today? Um, I mean, I've been this quarantine, just the days run farther or more and more together, not farther, I should say. Uh, I've been devoting so much of my time recently to a video game called uh, The Crew 2. Like, it was, um, I guess there was an original crew that I never played, but it's like this uh, open world game that's focused on racing, be it cars, bikes, uh, motorcycles, planes, things like that. And, like, it's basically a map of the United States. There's places, you can't go anywhere, but there's a lot of cities they mapped out for it. And uh, it is insanely addicting, and I've been playing that. Uh, I'm not usually a racing game guy, and um, but like, it's just this open world, and you can see anyone else that's playing it. So like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I play with some friends. Like you can link up, or you can just see when your friends are playing. Like poor Hemplo, I was just kind of driving in the backwoods somewhere the other day, and my buddy Matt, who was online, saw that I was online and just flew a plane into my car. Like, you can just, like, run up and, like, fuck with people when they're playing. So, uh, it's a lot of fun. That, and I've texted you because you're a fucking wizard at it. Um, Injustice 2. That, yes. That game is a lot of fun. That's, like, I've been kicking so much ass as Raphael from the Ninja Turtles. That's your guy? That's Raphael? Yeah. Is, is your pick? Yeah. Uh, that that would be my go-to. Like, I know you can be any of the Turtles, but Raphael was always my guy when I was a little kid. Um yeah, my this quarantine time has definitely reinvigorated my love of video games. So, probably getting fatter and deteriorating away my liver tissue more with the <laughs> amount of beer I drink playing video games. But uh, at least I'm having fun in the meantime and keeping my sanity. So, yeah, uh, Injustice, The Crew 2. If you're listening to this and for some reason you have The Crew, holler at your boy. I'll give you my PlayStation Network name and we can fly planes into each other. Um <laughs> And then just, like, I, I've i probably plugged this at least three times already in the podcast. I watched Smart People again last night. We will have to do that movie for the podcast. It Ten is, times, at least. <laughs> it's the absolute best. Like, every, I, it's been a few years since I watched it, and I was just like, this is, this is perfection as a white okay. person. It's a white people okay. movie. 2021 is the year of smart people. Hell yeah. Sarah we'll Jessica it. Parker, as she was meant to be. God. I, I hate that, like, two of my favorite movies, like, if I had, like, a hundred, top hundred movies, two of them have Sarah Jessica Parker in it. What's what have I one? become? Family Stone, baby. Oh, yeah, duh. Yeah. Yeah. But I do love Sex in the City, so it is what it is. So, yeah, play video games, watch smart people. Julio, what do you got on your side? Uh, just to quick movie plugs, uh, The Assistant is on Hulu now. I've is that been the waiting. Robert De Niro? That is also the assistant, isn't it? Okay, no, but this is not Robert. <laughs> this okay. is a 2020 movie. Uh, it it had some some early buzz, I guess, right before the pandemic hit, and I don't remember if it was just like a digital release or actually had like a, a limited release and then everything shut down. But um, I'd heard that it was 
it was worth watching and I've been waiting to see if it would show up on one of those free streaming, you know, like Netflix or Hulu instead of having to rent it through Amazon because, yeah. you know, I'm cheap. And and it finally happened. It's on Hulu and it's an hour 28, really slow burn. So I know it's not for everyone, but I think that the payoff to that slow burn is awesome. And just to finish selling it to you, Alex, uh, the main character, the protagonist is Ruth from Ozark. So nice. if, if you like Julia Garner, yeah, which I, I do... You- I think you tweeted something about that, and I saw that. Yeah, she's she's really good. The movie's really good. Like I said, short, powerful, and, and very different. So I I, I I would strongly recommend people check it out, uh, especially if you're one of those people that are kind of struggling to find 2020 releases that are worth talking about. <laughs> uh, this one this one's one of them. And then also, I don't know if it's a 2020 release, but it's uh, one of those Netflix originals. Uh, it's uh, The Platform. It's... It's from Spain. It's in Spanish, so you're gonna have to read some subtitles. Uh, a sort of horror thriller movie. You might have seen it pop up on your Netflix, Alex, and it's uh, probably right under two hours. The concept is pretty simple. The, these people are in some sort of prison, and there's like different floors. So you get put on a floor, and there's floors below you, floors above you. There's an elevator, a platform that goes. From top to bottom. It starts at the top, full of food. And then it stops on every level. And the people on that level have like, I don't know, 10 minutes to eat. And then whatever's left goes down to the next floor and so on. You're not allowed to keep any food in the platform. So when your two minutes are up, you have to just, you can't keep anything. So you eat as much as you can, I guess. But the people on the lower levels are fucked because by the time that the platform gets to them, it's just left nasty leftovers if there's anything left. And uh, nobody knows how many uh, levels are on the platform. But basically, every month, after a month, you get shuffled to a new level. And that could be good if you get shuffled to a top level. Uh, you could be fucked if you get shuffled to like level, I don't know, a hundred, <laughs> you know, Jesus. when you don't get anything. Uh, and it's you and someone else. You always have a partner. And that's just the setup. And then what happens there is just, you know, pretty awesome. It's, uh, there's some gruesome stuff. There's some, uh, obviously, you can, much like with Homefront, you can choose to bring a lot to it <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe be disappointed. Or you can go in with extremely low expectations and be surprised by how much you walked away with by the time it gets to the end. Um, I had a blast. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know where the story was going to go, and it was it was a lot of fun. So I would say the platform on Netflix, The Assistant on Hulu, I, I wouldn't want to give anything about the plot of The Assistant away because there's you know there's very little uh, plot-wise, even though there's a lot going on emotionally. So yeah, I would just say just watch those two, and you have killed successfully, I don't know, about three hours of quarantine, <laughs> three and a half. Well, as we continue to do, we provide you all with alternatives and recommendations of what to do in these trying unprecedented times uh so julio's got some movie recommendations i've got some uh virtual reality type recommendations for y'all so uh so that wraps up home front that wraps up this step uh this stop rather in the summer of winona on deck is little women Uh, but that'll be next time For this time, that's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time.
it was it's nothing nothing crazy don't get, get your minds out of the gutter uh it was just uh we were at a party and by we i mean some friends and i you were not there and my wife was not there because otherwise this dream would have gone differently but i it was some sort of function at, at some sort of bar um probably austin downtown so sort of hipsterish and uh when our writer showed up and i started geeking out and i was like man i i want a picture at, at the very least i want a picture uh, and you know say hi and and then I had that conflict of, do I tell her about the podcast? Would he, would she be <laughs> cool with the idea of the Summer of Winona? Or would me telling her about the Summer of Winona turn into this thing that makes Winona Ryder hate me forever? Uh, if she goes home, listens to it, and it's like, what the fuck? So I was, I was debating that, and then I decided, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go. I'm going to get a picture of Winona Ryder. And then after I have the picture and we're both happy on the picture, I'll tell her about the, the podcast. So at least if, if if everything goes south, I at least have the picture. And uh, so I walked up to her and I, I don't know, like I probably said something like, hey, big fan, can I get a picture? And uh, she didn't answer. She just turned away and walked out oh. <laughs> through like a, a glass door. <laughs> Yeah, and I just turned to my friends and I looked like, um, okay, so it's, it's gotta be one of these. It's gotta <laughs> be this kind of story, and uh, and then she came back like a few seconds later. Like I saw she talked to some guy, and then she came back and she's like, um, okay, I just I just talked to them. We, we can let's just get out of here. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, yeah, let's just let's just go hang out. And then of course that's when the the dream gets fuzzy, and then I wake up. So I know that I woke up. Like I was hanging out with another writer. I didn't get to tell her about the podcast. I didn't get the picture, but I felt like I was getting close to the picture at least. So somewhat of a happy ending. Um, That's uh yeah, I, getting the one on one time I think supersedes the need for the picture. So like I just imagine you were wearing the T-shirt of the podcast and being like, "Oh, have you <laughs> have you seen my shirt? Do you want to know about this podcast that I do?" And I was wearing the limited edition Summer of Winona uh, shirt. 